0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host Dave Kale and we have, in addition to a wonderful discussion, some very very exciting announcements to make about Signum, which we'll get right to in a second. But first a preview of what's to come, a long and deep discussion about the linguistics of the Silmarillion which, shockingly, is...
1: (laughs) I think we just lost half our podcast listeners. No, I
0: think we just doubled it. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely.
2: (laughs) If you're listening, pause right now and tell all of your other Tolkien Linguistic Geek friends that we're going to be talking about that today. That's right. Run, Yes, yeah, so go on. today
0: we're bringing the uh, <laughs> second part of uh, uh, the discussion that we started last time about sort of big picture stuff for season two. Um, and if you recall, last time we left off getting right into sort of Okay, how are we going to handle sort of, you know, we 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 started with um, the sundering of the races, of the Elven races, and we started we started getting into you know linguistics and how how the language will change and how we could represent that on screen, but left it till today. Now we're doing it. So, right. without further ado, I am joined as always by Trish Lambert, the Tolkien Maven, and Corey Olson,
2: the Tolkien Professor. Corey, take it away. Good morning, everybody. Okay, so yeah, first I do want to start off with announcements because there are some super exciting things going on. Uh, uh, you know, for, so for all of you Tolkien fans out there, wanted to make sure uh, that you know about this. And I, I always think about this because, I, you know, for me, one of the things that's driven all of the stuff I've done with Mythgard and Signum from the beginning has basically been you know, my own memory of how excited I would have been to discover any of this stuff, like how much I longed for this kind of thing, you know, when I was like, uh, you know, in high school and college and in my twenties and everything when these things didn't exist. And so, um, so I always, uh, want to share and make sure everybody knows what's going on. So first, one comparatively uh, one com- comparatively small thing, um, but still very cool, is just to make sure everybody knows that our next Mythgard Academy class on the Lost Road has begun this past Wednesday. We did the first uh, session on the Lost Road. We talked about the fall of Numenor um, and uh, uh, Tolkien's conception of the Numenor... Uh, uh, idea and how it was integrated with Middle Earth. The way that the fall of Numenor came in as basically like a sequel to the the you know w- what we now think of as the First Age material, um, and it made him have to go back and change the ending of the First Age material so that he can incorporate it. Anyway, it's uh, it's as really really cool stuff. Um, and starting this coming Wednesday, we're gonna be talking. We're gonna be begin talking about the Lost Road, the novel that Tolkien started writing and didn't finish. This is the famous novel that he started writing in that kind of bet that he made with C.S. Lewis when the two of them f- tossed it and they, they decided that one of them was going to write a, a space travel story and the other was going to write a time travel story and they flipped the coin and C.S. Lewis got space travel and that's where the space trilogy came from. That was out of the silent planet and um, and Tolkien got time travel and that was the lost road. So uh, he didn't finish it, of course, being Tolkien, but um, we, uh, we're going to start uh, our discussion on that next week. So and Jack
1: Jack did his in like a week,
2: talking everything. <laughs> right. Yeah, C.S. Lewis published that, or, you know, finished it and and got it to publication, like sandwiched between two other books that he was that he had that he had completed. Uh, whereas Tolkien, uh, uh, you know, wrote several drafts and and uh, that is several drafts of the first few chapters and didn't finish. So yes, that's all very typical on both fronts. Um, though uh, though Tolkien himself was actually instrumental in helping uh, Lewis get out of the silent planet accepted for publication. I mean, there exists in in Tolkien's letters, you can see the letter that he wrote to the publisher, to his publisher um, uh, about, uh, because this was right after The Hobbit, it was 1936 was the coin toss, and 1937 was when The Hobbit was published. So he already had a relationship with a publisher, which Lewis didn't have uh, in that at that time, uh, in the same way he'd done some academic publishing, but not very much, uh, uh, you know, sort of general publishing yet. Anyway, so yeah, it's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, so, so that book, The Lost Road, we're going to start talking about, uh, we're going to start talking about next, uh, that is, The Actual Lost Road, we're going to start talking about next week. We've already started talking about The Lost Road and Other Writings, Volume 5 of the History of Middle-earth series. So... Well, that's Wednesday, 930, uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, if you can join us live, uh, you can go to the MythGuard.org website under the Academy tab at the top and find the, the webpage, which gives the whole week-by-week week reading schedule and uh, the red, the registration link uh, for the live session. Of course, if you can't make the live session, which I totally understand, it's not, again, 9.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. It's the late-night session on the East Coast. Um if, uh, if you can't make that session live, all of the, uh, the episodes, uh, uh you know, the, the class sessions of those are posted on YouTube, um, And on iTunes U, and we have a podcast feed as well for the audio uh, uh, version, if you want the audio only version of that as well. So there are lots of places to get it, it's completely free. And and by the way, I don't think I've really talked about this enough. Um, Again, for Tolkien fans out there, did you know that all of the Mythgard Academy classes we've ever done are on YouTube? You know, that if you go to the Signum University YouTube channel, you can find all like 250 class sessions now that I've done is sort like 250 two hour class sessions in which I've covered now the first four volumes of the history of middle earth series. And we've started the lost road and we did unfinished tales and the entire, by the way, the entire Lord of the Rings. Um, and then in addition to that, of course, we've done many other awesome works like Dune and Ender's game and Watership down and, uh, Jonathan strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, and, uh, recently Dracula, my Dracula extravaganza. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah. Yeah. So that's it. <laughs> Lydia is of course reminding me that of course, as always, they, uh, uh, YouTube did its uh, knee jerk, uh, 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 protesting of my, uh, my dracula movie classes because of course the film clips that i'm showing are copyrighted material And although we're just doing an educational thing they uh they they always flag those so you have to go to uh to youtube or actually those are posted on the dracula web page the dracula course webpage as well uh in defiance of youtube so there we are um but anyway uh so uh so that's one thing that's going on the other big thing that 's go the bigger thing that 's going on is we have made uh we have made a revolutionary change to the Signum university uh graduate program our our credit program this fall um, and I really want to encourage everybody to go and check that out um it um, it is uh, uh it's it's a really exciting change the the main thing basically is the shift. The shift that we have that we've done is, you know, for those of you who have been following uh, Mythgard and Signum for the last few years, you know that basically the experience of 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 our program has been it's been essentially a stream of really cool classes. Right. And like every term, there's like suspense about which classes we're going to be offering. And uh, and and, you know, they're sort of new and unexpected. And that has its own charm and is kind of fun. Um, But what we've really done now that we've been going for some time is we've really settled down and we now have a real core program of studies, a, a core Tolkien studies program. And a Tolkien Studies concentration uh, that we have articulated, and we're committed to to running that program, to running those courses uh, every two years. So we now have a we now have a solid and predictable rotation of courses. If you go to our, by the way, our beautiful new website uh, at signumuniversity.org, um, and uh, you can so so on our beautiful new website. Uh, you can find um, uh, the pages about our concentrations, where you can see more details about this. Um, if you go to our academics tab, and in our language and literature program, you can see our concentrations. If you if you mouse over that, um, so if you go to our Tolkien studies page, uh, you can see a list of the awesome faculty that teach in our class our our, our courses, and you can see our whole. A uh, series of courses, which will give you a really in-depth study uh, into Tolkien's uh, texts and Tolkien's world. Uh, the Hobbit, you know, uh, the, my class on The Hobbit. Verlin Flieger's wonderful class on the Lord of, on the Lord of the Rings. Um, the class, Dr. Uh, Tom Shippey and I taught together, uh, Beyond Middle Earth on uh, uh, you know Tolkien's. Sort of world outside of Middle Earth, all of his non Middle Earth writings, and 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 sort of how those fit together, and and what those show us about uh, Tolkien and his and his works. My class on Tolkien's poetry, uh, the the Lewis and Tolkien class that I did comparing uh, comparing C. S. Lewis and J. R. R. Tolkien, John Garth's Tolkien's Wars in Middle Earth, uh, Tom Shippey's Beowulf class, um, really 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 wonderful stuff. Just a a fantastic way to really dig into. Tolkien's world in uh, in in a much deeper way, um, and the cool thing, the other cool thing that we have had in addition to really having this uh, uh, this 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 really cohesive Tolkien studies program now, uh, we also have a new certificate program. So that I know a lot of people, um, even though I run a master's degree program, I'm well aware of the fact that most people don't actually need a master's degree. I total in in language and literature, I totally understand that. Um, but we now have a certificate program, so that if you're just interested in in you know wanting to really kind of dig into this stuff in depth and really just kind of enrich your own understanding of these uh, of, of 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 Tolkien's uh, texts and his world uh, in this way, you can just uh, you can enter our certificate program. You take the same courses, but this, the, the 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 master's degree program is ten courses plus the plus the thesis at the end. The certificate program is just is just five courses, um, so that you can. see still really, you know, plunge in and get some depth there, but you're not obligating yourself to the entire, uh, program and it, it doesn't, it doesn't culminate in the degree and you don't write the thesis and stuff. So, uh, it's, it's in that way, much less of a commitment, but still a really great enrichment of Tolkien studies. So those are things that I wanted to tell you about that we're doing this term. I'm really excited, uh, about our new program and, and I hope people will, uh, will, take a look at it and really consider so much is changing at Signum this year. And I'm really, really excited uh, about all these things and to, to, to share our new program. Of course, it's not just a Tolkien Studies program. We do have other concentrations and other certificate programs like in imaginative literature. If you're more into, uh, you know, things like, uh, uh, things like you know, uh, fantasy and folklore in general or uh, science fiction and things like that, we have, you know, we have our imaginative literature concentration uh, we also have our concentration in Germanic philology uh so if you really if you really want to dig into the linguistic situation and 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 dig into languages and in, in in particular uh you know these the 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 languages the Germanic languages that Tolkien spent so much of his life with uh we have a whole concentration uh for Germanic philology as well so you can learn anglo saxon and uh, uh translate your way through Beowulf line by line and you can learn Old Norse, which is a new class that we're going to be offering this year and you can uh and you can study uh middle English as well with in my Chaucer class and uh lots of things. So anyway, it's um it's 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 really fun. So just wanted to let you guys know that these things are out there and uh uh and and to to take a look at our awesome new website and uh and see what you find because i think if you've if you've even if you've you know known about signum and mythgard for a while i think you'll find if you sort of look at things that um uh it's uh it's different than what you had uh, seen before so anyway um and yeah kimber people do teach philology Uh, uh philology is making a comeback at signum university at least um So uh, it was funny. Actually, Tom Shippey was laughing about this when, you know, we have our uh, the introduction to philology class that Tom Shippey taught. uh, And he was laughing when I was approaching him about this. He's like, you know, philology is something that's been dying and being cut at universities around the world uh, for years. And here I'm coming to him saying, like, our students are just demanding a philology course. You know, we, we, we have to. We have to have it we can we can barely keep ahead of demand here and he was he was sort of laughing about that uh and thinking how uh how 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 delighted Tolkien would have been uh about that uh and I'm sure delighted about that too so anyway, so those are the big things happening at Signum. now we do need to buckle down and uh get back to the first stage here, but I did want to share that with everybody so all right, let us then transition back to film film stuff. So last time, um, we're so today we're doing our second episode of our kind of general um, overview of. So, and this is again the 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 concept here is we're we're wanting to prepare the way. Uh, especially for the people who are thinking about all the practical stuff that we'll get back to again at the end of the season. Um, that is, so for people who are thinking about settings and costumes and casting and uh, and uh, and music and all that stuff. Um, but at the same time, in doing this, we're also, of course, thinking through sort of stories and characters and things and uh, hopefully laying a good foundation for the much more specific discussions we're going to be having as we go through episode by episode. Uh, so we have a bunch of that still to discuss today. So it's our second session doing that next time we're going to, uh, yeah. So, so in the next, in our next episode, we're going to start with episode one, we're going to begin doing the episode by episode discussions. Um, but today we're going to, we're going to finish our general discussion. So, okay. Um, uh, so let's, um, yeah, so let's get so as 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 I was saying, last time we did especially the first half of the season that is we focused a lot on the on the Middle-earth, end of things on the, the 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 Teleri side, thinking about the Nandor and thinking about the Sindar and um, uh, you know what what are they going to look like and how are we going to settle them and 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 what's going to happen, but we didn't talk much about the Valinorian side of the season, which is of course really the whole second half of the season. We need to think about Tol Arisea. we need to think about uh, you know, Tyrion, a um, uh and it, are we going to in fact make any tuna fish jokes in any way uh, when we do that um, these are all important questions we still have to answer as well as lots of uh, characters and things, so that's what we're going to, no, I'm not serious about that Brian, though you know uh, there could be there could be some kind of very subtle fish motif, I suppose, uh, but never mind um, <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I think having a little gentle fun with the professor who is so gets so wrapped up in his own languages that uh, he forgets like the English analogues of the, uh, of, the <laughs> of the words that he has devised um, and frankly, I think he deserves teasing about this, especially since. Uh, Like, on the one hand, he asks us not to think about the fish... When he has a hill called Tuna, and yet at the same time he asks us to believe that it's a perfect coincidence when he names the Isle of Numenor Atalanta, and he's like, I know that looks like Atlantis, but it, you total—it's totally not just the name Atlantis. This is this is just derived from the languages, which it is. Like I know it is, um, but uh, but you can't have it both ways, man. Like you can't expect us to 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 do that anyway. You you can't you can't go and call the island of the elves. Out Avalone, and the isle, the downfallen Isle of Numenor, Atalanta, and at the same time be like, but don't think about the English analogs to these. It has nothing to do with Avalon or, 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 or Atlantis. Um, <laughs> ugh, please. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 um, so anyway, so... Um, let's um so let's 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 get into things now so where I want to start today I want to start today with where we ended up last time which is the linguistic stuff so okay so just to, to kind of recap briefly the problem was how do we represent the uh, the 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 divergence of the elvish languages um, and of course this is as we were you know as we mentioned but I, I was feeling a little guilty in retrospect because it kind of came up it kind of took me on the hop. I wasn't really planning to talk about that last time, so I wasn't really p- prepared and didn't go into lecture mode. So I want to make sure everybody everybody understands. I'm always worried that I'm going to take too much for granted uh, in this show, that I, you know not everybody who's listening uh, knows everything about the Silmarillion and its history, so I do want to make sure to kind of explain some stuff. Of course, as, as, as did come up last time, um, the fact that there were two different Elvish languages that Tolkien made, Quenya and Sindarin, as they are eventually named. Um, Though that wasn't always their names. Um, Of course, nothing in Tolkien always has a stable name. Uh, The names of things are always being revised and that's one of the reasons why so many people have so many different names in Tolkien. It's because he's so often changing their names but very often doesn't get rid of the old ones, so they just kind of you know, they just kind of accrue names uh, often in Tolkien's mind. But anyway, we've got the two Elvish languages, uh, Quenya and Sindarin, and uh, and Tolkien, of course, being a philologist and very interested in the history and development of languages and how one language uh, turns into another. The whole um, that's really kind of the idiosyncrasy of to- not only of Tolkien's language invention but of Tolkien's whole creative concept is that he didn't only just sit down and say, hey, I think I'm going to invent a language. No, Tolkien sat down and said, hey, I think I'm going to invent a whole complicated system whereby one original proto-language eventually over time, as the two different groups of its speakers are separated by space for a prolonged period of time, how those languages evolve in two different ways and eventually become two distinct languages, though they come from the same language root. (laughs) that was Tolkien's like fun project that he was sitting down with and he has said and I see every reason to believe him that this is not you know many people would say okay that's kind of uh, that's kind of hardcore to go that far uh, in in order to uh, give uh, you know some realism to your story by giving them languages like that except it's even more hardcore than that because Tolkien did not of course write the stories of the Silmarillion and decided that they really needed this whole linguistic situation uh, sort of hashed out in order to give it realism no, it was the other way around. He invented the languages and the philological shifts in the languages, and it was the stories that emerged from that um it it really like basically he had these languages and their two relationships <clears throat> with each other and was just then basically thinking how did this linguistics Situation come about, and his answer was all the stories, basically. So, so the stories of the Silmarillion really have their origin in uh, in this, not just in languages generally, but in uh, in this particular issue of the division and uh, evolution. Of these two languages, this is why the question of how we represent the difference between Quenya and Sindarin and the development of the divide between Quenya and Sindarin is such an apparently vexed issue. Uh, Because if 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 you came if you were listening to our discussion last week and had no idea of that history, you know of 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 what that meant to Tolkien and what role the languages played in his story origin, you might think we were making a really big deal out of something kind of small right i mean i'm imagining i'm trying to imagine a like trying to get like an actual modern studio head to take this at all seriously right if you're if you're trying to explain to a to like a a hollywood crew okay no like one of the biggest issues we've got to wrestle with is how do we do the distinction between uh, uh, Quenya and Sindarin? <laughs> they would, I think, just look at you really strange and be like, "Look, that's the most cuttable thing I've ever heard of, right?" You know, they like talk about talk about simplifying matters. Like, why on earth would we overcomplicate this? Like, they Elvish is a thing, right? Okay, fine. So we make them we the. the <laughs> We bring in some Elvish, right? But you're seriously wanting to do two different Elvish languages? And wait, no. It's not just that you're wanting to introduce two different Elvish languages so you have your elves, some speak one language and some a different language. That's already overcomplicated enough. But on top of that, you want to show that the language that they speak actually changes from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. I mean, I I can't imagine trying to talk an actual, you know, like Hollywood director or screenwriter into this idea. But, of course, to us we 're like this is the most crucial question of the entire season because it's the you know we you, you can 't just ignore it because it, for Tolkien, it was the whole thing it was the whole story um, so anyway so that's that that's that's the the whole context of this discussion that we 're having, but, as I was saying last time. I think it's a huge problem, um, both because of the, the sort of the telescoping, the the amount of time that is supposed to be passing in this season is already going to be hard to convey. We we have a frame. uh, So the frame will help us, uh, to sort of enable us to avoid doing the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, 5,000 years later subtitle at, you know, at the beginning of one of our episodes. Um, but, um, Uh, but anyway, yeah, so, so we, we, how do we, so, okay, so we've got the the passing of time is going to make this really difficult. How do we make the language shift? But, but, you know, I don't think it's really plausible at all for us to do. I, mean, I know there are some people, um, you know, Dave was characterizing this as a vocal minority of people who really want to see us have everybody speaking in Elvish all the time with English subtitles. Um, <laughs> that's That can't happen. That Well, first of all, that, like, kind of really can't happen. I mean... Um, You should know. There are two schools of thought about this, about Elvish languages. Um, one school of thought, basically, the, the, the two schools of thought on, on uh, among the Elvish linguistic f- folks is, do you follow, like, are you, when you're studying Elvish languages, are you studying what Tolkien wrote about Elvish languages? Like, are you just trying to learn, you know, Tolkien's own Writings about it, you know, the languages as Tolkien articu- the languages as Tolkien articulated them, or are you looking to write your own Elvish languages, basically kind of modeled after his? You know, you might be trying to follow his model and and follow his patterns, but you're basically making up your own Elvish languages. Um, that's that's essentially the core of the distinction. There are many scholars who do the former. Carl Hostetter is the is the sort of the center of of that school, and there's then there's the ones who are happy to make stuff up, and uh, David Sallow, the linguist who um, who uh, worked on the Lord of the Rings films, is pretty much the center of the of that school of the of the let's make stuff up school, because the fact is. You can, Tolkien's language doesn't have enough verbs there are not very many verbs at all in Quenya that you know as he wrote it I mean it's just there isn't enough material you can't hold a conversation uh, in in Tolkien's elvish languages <clears throat> it's just not possible there aren't enough words um, Tolkien didn't write out enough of it there are some there, there, there are word lists most of the word lists are nouns um, <clears throat> verbs are the biggest problem um. So as, as I, I, in a conversation I once had with Carl Hostetter about this, uh, he, 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 he the joke he often makes is, you know, he says he'll meet because, you know, he's well known as a Tolkien Elvish linguistics guy. And so he'll meet somebody who will say to him, like, oh, I can speak Sindarin. And he's like, OK, great. Order lunch you know like you can't do it you know like, there, like there, there there is no conversational like just Tolkien did not there there is not enough attested uh forms in either quenya or sindarin actually to be able to hold a real conversation um so if you're going to do this you have to you have to make stuff up um i don't have you know myself i 'm not a real stickler about this i don't i mean i, I, I I'm not in any way sort of anti the David Salhouettes make stuff up school. that seems to me a perfectly respectable thing to do, especially in the context that Salow did it you know with the films like you you 're involved in a sub creative thing okay fine like i i'm not i'm so i 'm definitely not kind of persnickety about that, but there's enough issue here i mean it's it's not just a question of we should have them speaking tolkien 's elvish that's not on the table they can't do that. Um, so we'd have to, we'd have to kind of make, we, we, you know, we would have to be firmly in the, in the let's make stuff up school if we were to do this anyway. And there's no point, frankly, it wouldn't solve our problem. To have everybody speaking Elvish all the time because like this, uh, uh, do we honestly expect if, if there are subtitles, I mean I don't know about you, but the experience I always have if I'm watching a, a movie with subtitles is after about two minutes I cease to pay a lick of attention to what anybody is saying on screen and it's like I'm reading a book, right? I try to look up to see their facial expressions and stuff but I'm not listening to their words I'm reading the the word, the translation on the screen. To me that's always the effect of, 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 of a sub subtitled film. So do we really think if we have subtitled Elvish that people are going to be paying enough attention to the Elvish that people are using to notice the difference? Heck, to even notice the difference when someone is speaking Quenya and someone is speaking Sindarin? I don't think they're even going to notice it. It's not even going to register. Um, so...
1: I would, because yeah. my television would be off by that time.
2: <laughs> well, there's that the, too. That yeah, you
1: know. There's
2: that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Besides which, if we had the, the Valar speaking English all the way through uh, season one. Uh, right. There you, you know, go. That's true. It's gonna be a little strange. To... It, it, it would be a little strange. Um, so. OK. All right. So. So, yeah, I, that I think is just uh, that really can't be on the table. That's not that's not. That's not a good solution, um, but I didn't have a solution last time, as you'll recall, and I just kind of uh, punted it out to you guys. Um, and you guys have responded, which is awesome, and I actually really like uh, the idea that was developed uh, in the forum. And this, I think, was an I- was the idea that um, that um, uh, that Phil put forward, right? Phil put forward, and and, right. and uh, uh, several others, uh, you know, Marie, Mithluin and um, uh, and others were, were sort of uh, emphasizing. And I, I really like this as kind of a compromise solution. Um, and Marie, I was thinking exactly in the same, uh, in the same direction that you were. Um, ab- uh, that is, uh, you made the comparison, uh, Marie, with Watership Down, which is exactly what it made me think of and, and where, where I was kind of going with that. That is Okay, so the concept is basically to be introducing Elvish terms not to just have now in the Lord of the Rings films what we what we generally get are elves who speak English most of the time just kind of to represent that they're speaking in Westron, you know, to other non-Elvish speakers. But occasionally they will speak Elvish among themselves with subtitles, right? Or Aragorn will you know speak Elvish to to Arwen or to Haldir or somebody like that, right? Um, and that's okay. I mean, having some passages like that. Would be fine. Um, In fact, I I, I could imagine some things will come up at various points, maybe not in this season, but especially in season four. Um, Season four is really where the rubber's going to hit the road with this issue because that's the one, um, again, if you remember your Silmarillion, you'll remember the big moment um, when Thingol finds out about the kinslaying after the Noldor are back and he decrees uh, he outlaws Quenya. Basically, and says that anyone who speaks Quenya, uh, you know, anywhere near his realm, uh, will be held to be like kinslayers, unashamed. You know, so like, like basically, people who speak Quenya are kinslayers. Uh, so, so from then on, everybody speaks Sindarin, and Quenya really ceases to be, uh, you know, sort of a, a regular conversational language. Um, that's the big so and 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 that that's going to be really one of the central themes of season 4 season 3 remember is going to be primarily focused on uh on on faenor and the rebellion of the noldor um it's season 3 is going to be stretching from the darkening of valinor through the rebellion of Feanor and the burn and the the kinslaying and then the the journey and the burning of the ships and the Halcarexsa and the landing in Middle Earth and Feanor's death and uh, and the rescue of uh, of Mytheros by Fingon. I'm still thinking of the rescue of Mytheros by Fingon as the the culminating moment. You know, the the season finale of season three. Um, most likely, that are the death of Fanor but i think i think the rescue um is the, the positive note is what i'd rather end on um and then season 4 is going to be uh the you know after the noldor are back and that's so so the the sort of the interactions between the sindar and the noldor um in um in Beleriand during the siege of Angband and then culminating in the uh in the battle of sudden flame the battle of sudden flame uh is going to be uh, the, the culmination then of season four, um, and the, and the death of Fingolfin, the, uh, highly dramatic, uh, duel with Morgoth and the death of Fingolfin. So, okay. Um, so that's, <clears throat> that's just to remind you of the general shape that we're looking for. So this issue, the, the language issue is going to be a big issue in season four. Uh, that's where it's going to really, it's going to really come down, um, So, how do we set that up, and how do we do this? So, again, the idea that uh, that Phil floated and that Marie was developing was um, that we we do we don't just have because, of course, we're not going to have the same occasions in the Lord of the Rings. It was easy because we had a bunch of we had some you know we had elves, but we had a bunch of non-Elvish speakers, right? Um, So they could still have the overall context of the film be. You know, have have Westron be English, which is what Tolkien did, right? Um, So all of the hobbits and men and everybody else are all speaking English to each other and then have the elves occasionally off speaking Elvish to each other uh, with subtitles. But we don't have that because everybody's elves, right? So we don't, you know, there is, we we don't have like Elvish only being spoken on the side. It's being spoken all the time. So we can't do that. We can't just have Mm -hmm. like, you know side conversations happening in elvish so the concept was to be introducing elvish ideas and words like there would just be some words that we will use in elvish untranslated one example that was given and i think phil was pointing out how um in the hobbit films they actually did this uh uh they did they they were a little bit more kind of proactive about this uh, in the Hobbit films than they were in the Lord of the Rings films. And he's right. I hadn't noticed that, but he's right. How, for instance, um, they use the word melon, friend, um, just casually in conversation without translation, right? I mean, by context, you can tell what they mean, um, but they just they just basically interject that Elvish word into the midst of the conversation. Um, and the idea is to sort of adopt that as a pattern. And again, this is where Lewin made the, or, or Marie made the, 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 Um, The comparison to Watership Down, which I quite like, not only because it's one of my favorite books and I love it very much, but because I think that that linguistic thing works very, very well in Watership Down. So let me briefly digress on Watership Down, uh, which, by the way, I just started reading with my eight-year-old son, Matthias, so I'm particularly excited about Watership Down right now. Um, But anyway... um, in Watership down the idea is that the rabbits have their own language they, they they speak in translated english most of the time but the concept is there are some ideas which are really kind of only expressible in rabbit language like they you know they, 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 they have a word um for, you know they just they, they you know that sort of expresses how they think Um, And there is it's not really translatable into English like the the rabbit language would have a single verb, which meant to go outside your hole and graze above ground. Um, But that's not a concept that English has ever developed a single verb for because it's not important to humans. Um, But obviously, in in a rabbit language, it would be a a, a central verb. So they have one, sylphle. And that word becomes used again the way that Adams does it. And he does it very well. He sort of explains it once, and then just uses it throughout. And you kind of, as a reader, come to to think increasingly in Lapine, the rabbit language, as you go through the book. I do think that that's a really interesting model for how we could introduce uh, the Elvish language and indeed the Elvish languages into uh, into the story. That we could fi- we could find sort of particular terms like they did in the Hobbit movie with Melon, which of course means friend. Um, terms and ideas that we could introduce and as phil was pointing out there are already many words that are already kind of familiar to people um who have read the books right of course because this is one and i think the reason that i really like um this as a solution is that it strikes me as very much like what tolkien already does in his published works um you can gain even if you know you have no instruction but like you notice right you notice the trend um of what certain words mean, right, by seeing the repetition of them in different uh, in different um, uh, 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 contexts, so you know you see the arid Luin, and arid wethrin and arid gorgoroth, and pretty soon you realize, hey arid means mountains right because all these different mountain ranges are called the arid something or other, right so arid clearly means mountain or mountains like mountain range um. Uh, just as uh, similarly you can you begin to see that the that the 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 syllable more means black right okay so there's mordor uh, which is called at times the black land in English um, and then you know and you've got so and that 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 more uh, uh, syllable comes up in other contexts um right like with Turin the black sword um and, and so you know we we you, you begin to kind of just figure out, right? Oh, okay. I see more need, more means black. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Morgul, Morgoth. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Chris, uh, you begin to, so, and, and the more you do that, the more you begin to, to notice it other places, right? And the more you begin kind of to, 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 to understand. So I think this is a really cool, it would have to be done carefully, of course. Um, but, um, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's a really neat, um, uh, uh, uh Solution, I think, um, and especially we could have over. T- it's even a way in which, if we did it really cunningly, uh, and those of you who are really uh, who are really into the elvish linguistics thing, could help us figure out how to do this really cunningly. Um, we could actually use some you know roots which are similar or common between the two of them at the beginning, and 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 have you know basically be choosing words which are more and more. Deviant, so that the language, um, the the conversation being sort of peppered with these words that we that we are in these ways kind of introducing our viewers to and getting them used to, um, that the the sort of it, it, that it could really give a, a sort of a flavor because Quenya and Sindarin do sound quite different, um, so as they get into Valinor, we can have these Quenya words. Um, uh, you know, for things in Valinor and for uh, for concepts and ideas, so that it really can. We I think we really could do this if we did it very carefully. Create a situation in which we're not losing the general viewer, right? They're still able to follow what's going on, and we'll we'll kind of pick up and use these uh, these words and these terms and be comfortable with those. Um, it it can not be too many, of course. Um, but uh but 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 enough of them and yet actually create a situation where when when we have the two elves talking you know the the sindar and the noldor meeting again uh in season 4 um they they do actually sound different um and and people will be able to tell the difference between their uh, their their languages so i think i think it's neat we could also do in naming as well like we can kind of try to uh, try to emphasize na- not 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 that we're going to change the names of characters in this in this direction, but um, uh, but in 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 names for for, for, for places and things we could uh, that that's obviously another opportunity to to bring this in. Um,
0: this um this seems like the seems like really the only feasible solution.
2: <laughs> yeah, it does. In addition does.
0: to the, in addition to like in addition to it being a good idea, it also seems like the only really Practical the only thing idea. we can do i do wonder um, that i think the trick, one of the tricky things will be how to how to how to make the impact of uh, thingles decree obvious on screen and dramatic
2: yes, yes. I agree. That is going to be it, 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 making that be sufficiently dramatic is going to be tough. Uh, the good thing about that, though, is that we don't have to think about that for two more years. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, 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 I'm kicking that one firmly down the road. Uh, True. And,
0: <laughs> and you know, I mean, if we're being flexible on that, um it doesn't, you know, like we don't have to slavishly follow that. We can have him not only decree uh, that, you know, um, that you can't you can't speak in the Noldorian language, but also, let's say, you can also can't wear certain Noldor clothes, and you can't. Right. I don't know. Basically, right. there's a lot of things we can do to make it more That's obvious. A good idea. On screen.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, actually, that does actually apply to our conversation now, which is that if we do have the Noldor dress in a particular way, mm-hmm. that will then down the line that ban can be included. Yeah. yeah, yeah I the
2: ban, because uh, I agree, especially if the if the language is really only being re- represented in occasional words, it's going to make Thingol's decree seem especially petty. Right? No more can right. you use this particular word when you mean that thing. <laughs> That's not going to be allowed anymore. You have to use this different yeah. word for that and take that, people. You know, I think <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's really not going to. Okay. So, yeah, I. I I agree. Yeah. I, I, I do think that broadening the ban makes sense, um, and it, it needs to be because, yeah, I mean, w- when we think about what it means, then it the becomes
0: book. like a ban on Noldor culture. A Noldor
2: culture, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's it's which it's, is really what was intended, right? I mean, exactly, that's really kind exactly exactly of- what it means is like basically leave leave your you know Valinorian Noldorin kinslaying ways behind you. Right. If you're going right. to, if if you're, you know, uh, I, I now associate, I think I'll now associate your, you know, Noldoran ways with kinslaying and with 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 enmity with my people. Right. So if you want to show that you are not the enemies of my people, basically you need to conform to us. You need to. You, right. It's it's all, it's he demands almost a kind of cultural subservience to the Sindar. Um, almost, I mean, it's—it's not like he sets it as a penance, but it's almost like that, right? Uh, the for only punishment, way, yeah, yeah. The, the only way that you yeah. can kind of atone um, for, or at least again demonstrate your repentance for the kinslaying, um, is to basically take on the culture right. and even, in a sense, the identity of the people that you that you uh, you know were against before.
1: Well, you know, other things that actually we could think about during this season too, then that apply would be certain gestures, mm-hmm. you know, ways of greeting uh, both in words of greeting and also in gestures of greeting. I mean, there could be specific you know, that kind of stuff as well that we set up now so that when the band comes, it it, it, it the gravitas of the band, the band comes through.
2: Yes. Yes. And yes, Marie, you're right. It does give us um, it does give us the opportunity to show different, Noldor having different attitudes toward this and flouting it to different extent. Yes, Um, yes. And and it enables us to do... Like, if we did have... I don't know. I mean, actually verbally decreeing a, a ban on, like, a clothing style... Like that—that would—that could sound really bad, uh, really dumb. I mean, you know, like it could come across really cheesy. But I do like that kind of a visual marker. As if there's if there's a way we can incorporate well that kind of a visual marker as well, because it enables like basically we can just show Karinthir, right? We don't even have, he right. doesn't even have to open his mouth, and we can know right. that he's defiant just from what he's wearing, right?
1: And also the same with like a gesture of greeting or a or a phrase of greeting, same thing, you know? Right. I mean in that same vein where they, they use the forbidden gesture or that. Yeah, you're right. They right. wear the forbidden necklace or whatever it is. Yeah.
2: Oh, I like, lo- yeah. Brian Fatterini's suggestion is gems. Um, uh, the, the, Ooh. the use of gems as, 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 as decoration on clothes. Cause it's a very Noldor thing, uh, right. Yeah, the Pat- making of gems and the use of gems in decoration. Um, so uh, that's really interesting, Brian. That's that's a fascinating idea. And of course, Brian, the th- one thing that I really like about that is you remember who brings more gems from Valinor than anybody else among the Noldor?
1: No, way.
2: no I no he he has a lot, but no, who brings most of them back with him? Oh, who brings Finrod? Oh, that's right. Finrod Felagund does. Yeah, the guy true. who is closest to Thingol, right? And who is Mm -hmm. not at fault. So, you know, sort of showing some of the, a way of showing that. So I would think that he would be very resplendent, Finrod Feligand, right? He famously brings all the jewels back. Um, But he's the guy that Thingol trusts most. So kind of showing how Thingol is also kind of... um, kind of uh, 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 shutting off his own kin there, right? Like, basically, <laughs> Finrod's own really kind of complex reaction to this. He's, on the one hand, totally anti-kinslaying, right? I mean, he's, he, he, you know, Finrod would be totally upset about that as well. Um, and yet, he's very much affected, by the band, and, and could feel it kind of aimed at him in unfair ways. Um, but he exactly Tom, he, I I do believe he would respond by adhering to the band per, to the band perfectly, and yet there would be maybe some tension between him and Thingol after that. Um, Anyway, yeah, I, I I really I really like it. And Brian, you're right; it is another way to make Doriath very strikingly different from other realms. If we have from the because remember, just like I was I was arguing last time with that the that, that the Nandor shouldn't have metal because where would they get it? They're not smiths, and they don't mine. Um, uh, you know, so all of their all uh, pretty much everything that they have would be wood and stone. Um, the the similarly, yes, the Sindar should have no gems. The craft, the making of gems. Was a, was a Noldor thing. Um, and I don't even know that we have the dwarves. In fact, the dwarves are metal workers. Um, but I don't even... I, I, I think we know that the dwarves also learned much from the Noldor. I think that we should make gems and gem cutting be an entirely Noldor thing and only places where the Noldor had been. So the dwarves learn it from the, from, from the Noldor. That's a really uh, good idea. And, and Themselves. So yeah, so in Doriath there should be no gems of any kind. Um, there can be precious metals, uh, but no gems. Yes, pearls, exactly, Marie. The emphasis is on... Pre- the, the, the Teleri get pearls. Círdan the shipwright and his folk get pearls from the shore, and they send them to Doria. So they can have pearls, but not gems. Um, and they can have precious metals that they get from the dwarves. Um, and, and you know, regular metal tools and things, too. This The Sindar can have metal, um, whereas I, I, I think the, the Nandor shouldn't. Um, but uh but no gem. So yeah, Brian, I like that. I think the the whole no gem rule is one uh is is a way that could be cuz basically we could make that not sound um, not sound silly. Do you understand what I mean by sounding silly? I mean, if it's, if, like, Thingol's Decree is like, and no more shall people wear tunics that go all the way down to the knee, because that <laughs> looks really silly. Uh, because because people who wear tunics that go down to the knee are the slayers of my kin. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, like, that could sound really dumb. But some Butsy Jams he can attach specifically to the pride and arrogance mm-hmm. of the Noldor. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Um, and so it, it it kind of makes context in the sense of like a moral decree. Right. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I like that. I like that as a, as a vision. So there'll be the linguistic thing, but then we can have, we can have the visual thing. Um, but of course the Noldor would still have their gems they would just wear them in private and they would have them in their homes and they would have them in their hordes, but they would not. Dude, that
0: would work. That would work so well. Cause that's what we're told about, um, exactly. about, uh, Quenya, that they speak it in private.
2: Right. Right. And All of course, yes, exactly. Exactly. And, um, and Brian, you're, you're right. Of course this, it, it also brings us right back to the, to the Silmarils and the oaths of the, the, the oath of the, of the sons of Feanor. Um, you know, so which could kind of give them, in a sense, a kind of a justification for defying the ban, and it'd be like, look, you know, we've already sworn an oath, and our we have we we have already sworn sworn a distinctly pro gem oath, uh, you know, and we're kind of invested in that. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely, um, like that, like that a lot. Okay, cool, excellent. I'm so glad we solved that problem, and now the whole linguistic situation won't be difficult at all. Actually, it will be really hard to execute. Um, But this means as we go through, um, one thing that you guys can be thinking about, and maybe we'll come back and we'll revisit this at the end of the year when we do our year-end... Casting, costuming, uh, setting, all of that stuff. Maybe one of the things we can come back to at the end is this linguistic question and see what suggestions you guys have made about words that can be introduced into dialogue uh, in order to create that kind of elvish feel. So I'll be interested to see what you guys come up with as we go through and talk about stuff. All right. So that was easy. We're making huge progress through our list of things we wanted to talk about here today. (laughs) Trish is laughing. We may because... have to extend to another. Uh, to another. <laughs> no, no, we're good. We're good. Trish is uh, laughing because we have like a, a an eight or nine item list, and and we've. Oh won my gosh! One all of, of which have this
1: degree of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this degree of detail
2: It's all good. It's all good. Okay. All right. Um. <laughs> So the second item uh, and Marie, this is where I are coming back to something that you raised, which I had been overlooking and we, I, you know, I, I didn't didn't mention it all last time, but is super important. And that is what's going on with the bad guys, um, you know, sort of the uh, the 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 villain story, because, of course, we've mentioned that the super secret nec- orc-, orc necromantic project is going on um, during this time. I love the idea. Um, of n- not only as we said, we're not going to be showing the breeding of orcs under any circumstances, um, but the idea, uh, you know, Marie, my my desire to avoid this topic, um, ha- I ha- it just fully embraces your suggestion that we leave it mysterious. I don't know why I didn't think of that myself, with my desire not to like solve this problem, and you know, why didn't I just say from the beginning, "Hey, let's just not talk about it." Um, but, yeah, I think like we can have the project going on um that is we can we can we can have uh um we can show orcs or like proto orcs or something early on um or not not very early on, but you know before the end of this of season two here um but we can we can actually leave it mysterious how exactly it happens because how would anybody know <laughs> who 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 has information about this, right? Um, Nobody saw this happening. Mm -hmm. Um, There are no eyewitnesses to this, right? So, so, you know, now of course we do stuff to which there is, um, uh, we do stuff all the time to which there were no witnesses. I mean, like we're showing for instance, in season one, uh, you know, private conversations between Myron and Morgoth, obvious, or you know, Melkor, obviously. Um, so it's not like we are restricting ourselves entirely to uh, stories that could potentially have been recorded and handed down by the elves. But, nevertheless, there seems to be plenty of justification for leaving a bit of mystery um, about the actual mechanics, about the actual process of the corruption of orcs. Um it's something that could even be discussed. Uh, remember that it's the orcs who captured and tortured, uh, uh Calabrian Arwen's mom. Right. And oh, God's right. daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, which that's a of, conversation starter. That's a conversation starter, exactly. So <laughs> so the question of the orcs and who they are and why they do what they do can come up very organically in the conversations between Arwen and, and Galadriel right. and Celeborn. Um, because, of course, the death of Culebrian and her dealing with that death and, de- well, the departure, anyway, from Middle-earth of Calabrian. Um You know, we we had we had talked about that as basically sort of the cornerstone of the frame discussion. So, obviously, orcs and what they are again very natural um, uh, element it's of bias It's also a little bit of a
1: counter argument you know to Arwen about the staying in Middle-earth thing mm-hmm. you know Arwen's activism in Middle-earth I mean I'm not sure quite how they could do that because it's like well there are no orcs over in Valinor that's why we should go there but I mean it's like something like you know we wouldn't have to worry about you know things happening like what happened to your mother that, you know it could it could weave into that activism argument Yep. Of our ones.
2: Yep. 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 I agreed. Oh, it, it uh, uh... Uh, Robert, I want to apologize to you. Uh, Robert Brown is such a careful reader and student. I've been able to rely on Robert for many years. Um, uh, Robert, uh, trying to correct my pronunciation is completely hopeless. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that from the beginning. Like, uh, I I, I mispronounce very many of Tolkien's names, uh, and my mispronouncing of them is almost wholly inveterate. Um, I have tried, this is just because I grew up, reading Tolkien since I was eight. So, I mean, I, I, it took me a long time to get myself out of the habit, which I, you know, having no guidance whatsoever and just an old paperback version of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and me not carefully reading the appendices when I was a kid because I was lazy. Um, I, I, I I used to pronounce soft Cs. I used to say Celeborn. You know, when I was when I was 13, I said Celeborn uh, and yeah. Celebrimbor. Uh, and it took me a long time to to get out of that habit, uh, and I will still occasionally slip uh, and call uh, those two characters Maglin uh, uh, and Maedhros uh, because that's how I pronounced them throughout my entire childhood um, and youth. So it's that's I you know and I so there are some habits so I've I have tried very hard uh, to train myself to do the vowels and consonants more or less correctly uh, but that's uh, I, I, so anyway I just I, I'm gonna mispronounce stuff. Heck, D- uh, heck
1: I mangled an actual English word for years same reason yeah. I read it ring wrath I always said ring wrath always ring
2: wrath yeah always did. yeah ring-wrath. shameful. Yeah,
1: I know, I know. This is (laughs) confession time on Film Film
2: (laughs) Project. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, just... But I I
1: will say, as far as Corey's pronunciations, I do notice that he's very egalitarian. You know, he'll say it one way, one time, and one way the next time.
2: That's like a reflection of... In that, if you listen carefully to my patterns of pronunciation, the whole, like internal, like, uh, guilt s- struggle that I have with myself <laughs> will be laid bare, you know, like my my, 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 theoretical knowledge of how it's meant to be pronounced and my impulsive mispronunciations and my waffling <laughs> among them. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's all, this is all, yeah, uh, it's just
1: the struggles of one it. man <laughs> <Exactly>. pronounced correctly. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but the other so, thing is, uh, and honestly, the thing which has kind of given me most freedom of Tolkien himself pronounces these things differently. Yeah. in different. He, I mean, as much as he was a sticker for so many things, when you actually hear him read, he's quite inconsistent. And uh, that is not only just inconsistent with himself, but also with his own rules. I mean, he will say this is how it's supposed to be, but it doesn't always sound that way. And when he. Now, was, I can hear.
1: I can hear linguist, linguistic people saying to you now: If Tolkien jumped
2: off a bridge, would you jump too? <laughs> right. I know there's like what, there's what he said and what he did, right? But it's, uh, but it's, it's it's you know anyway it's it's I mean his 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 reading of Elvish is gorgeous and and very very fluid. Um, uh, so again, I'm not. I'm not criticizing his elvish pronunciation exactly but again with names especially he he, it's there are some times when he just seems to to anglicize them really um and he was very conscious about that as well about like not wanting to stick to his own rules so much that he just made it hard for people you know i mean uh so that's why one of the reasons why he altered some of the names um going into uh uh, the publication of the Lord of the Rings, for instance, uh, he talks about this some in Appendix F, I think, or Appendix E. Uh, yeah, and I mean
1: that's why he took away bladorthin from
2: yeah the yeah.
1: Hobbit because yeah. bladorthin he was probably too afraid it was going to be bladorthin.
2: So yeah, it's yeah yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like bladder it does things,
1: look but, like, his uh, kid I, my theory is his kids probably pronounced it that way and he's like
2: ooh <laughs> yeah. i need to rethink this. maybe <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway okay sorry anyway so yes, yeah, so, so robert again i just i told him yeah Robert, uh, the, let the record show that it's um, not that I'm not acknowledging that you're totally right because you totally are. Every time you correct me, you're right and I'm wrong. Um, I just just wanted to make sure that's perfectly clear. And okay, Bad and guys please, continue st- so, yeah. P- please continue to do so. Actually, please continue to do so. And eventually, maybe you will improve me over time. Um, <laughs> a slow and painful process. So bad guy story. Um, I want to think, though, about... The, so, so with the orcs themselves, I don't think that there's that much that we need to actually show or reveal. And the orcs themselves aren't going to be major players in the story, really. I mean, they're not going to have a really outward role because uh, we're not going to get really into the Wars of Beleriand, like the right. early Wars of Beleriand, Um until that, that's going to be a season three thing like the orcs are going to start invading and we're going to get the, you know, the 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 death of Denethor uh, and the, you know, the the besieging of the havens and all that stuff that that, that stuff's going to happen in season three. Um, uh, so the so the orc storyline at this point is
0: less a military politics story and more a, a horror story.
2: Yeah, exactly. It has to do
0: with the kidnapping and corruption of the the, the children.
2: Exactly. Um, and and so, so so yeah, so it's obviously it's going to be a factor at the very beginning with in Quivian and mm-hmm. right if we're going to have elves uh, elves kidnapped and 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 the fear of the dark rider and stuff that that's going to come up right away in episode one and two. Um, so we'll need to think about it in, the, in that context. But sort of the bigger question. And I, I really loved this discussion uh, on the discussion forum. Is basically about there is going to be some like politicking basically between Gothmog and Myron because you remember we had established a kind of rivalry between Myron and, right. and, and and that's right the Balrogs, right? Um, which I really do love. I, I think as a general rule, we should always have the bad guys not getting along. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's kind of what one of the things that makes them bad guys, right? So, uh um, and and in particular, it's easy to see how the um, the Balrogs, who've totally had Melkor's back all along, right? They are the tried and true, old faithful. And to, to the idea of Myron waltzing in and like putting himself above them uh, in uh, their relationship with uh, with with Melkor and sort of usurping their power and position—that's obviously going to be an issue, right? So, mm-hmm. um. Uh, and we talked about sort of Myron being the more subtle one and Gothmog being just kind of the brute, um, which I think works personality wise. Um, so uh, so, yeah, so the, the 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 Marie's suggestion was the kind of backstage um, kind of jockeying for position. Basically, who's in charge at Angband? Um, and uh, I have an idea about that for overall plot. I don't know how we introduce it into episodes. We can kind of think about that as we go through. Um, All right, let's hear it. Here, here's, here, here's my pitch. Okay. Sauron is put in charge of Angband, right? So at the end of season one, um, you know, we have Angband existing, you know, we talked about this. This is like the secret force. so we've got, Utumno as the mighty frozen pleasure palace of uh, of Melkor in the north, um, and its focus is on like uh, uh, extravagant, even garish beauty. But it's not really a military fortification. Angband is his secret military for, but it's but it is kept secret. and The Dwarves don't know about it, and that's why they don't sack it. Um, but so Angband is the military installment. He puts Myron in charge of Angband. And Gothmog is with him in Utumno. Um, all right, and uh, but Gothmog escapes, and the 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 you know the Balrogs are kind of scattered. This creates the interesting situation when Melkor is chained and imprisoned. Uh, that basically, so you've got Gothmog and Sauron, right? And and so Sauron says to Gothmog, "I'm not saying this conversation actually happens, but Sauron's point of view is, <laughs> I'm in charge of Angband, right? And Angband is all we've got now, so I'm in charge." Right, you know, I, I'm I'm the one who is now running the show in Melkor's absence, and Gothmog is like, no, we were. I'm his second in command. We were the ones with him while you were skulking off down here. The only reason you escaped is that, you know, you were like out of the fighting and you were down here. Um, uh, uh yeah, he put you in charge of Angband, but I'm the one who's really in charge now. And uh, and then Sauron is like. Or, you know, Myron is like, oh, by the way, didn't you, like, run and hide when the uh, Valar took him prisoner? So, like, if you were second in command, you've totally been demoted and I'm in charge now. So you can see how both of them basically kind of think that they should be in charge and how they, there would be, they would, I think they would both be operating out of Angband, um, but there would be a lot of tension there. Um, Sauron being the one who is, in some ways, like, best qualified and he's conducting the, um, um, he is the uh, the the one who's conducting the orc uh, stuff, right? He's the one who's doing the the orc development mm-hmm. project. Um, but the tide turns at the end of the season because, of course, at the culmination of the season, we have the darkening of Valinor and the uh, the thieves' quarrel between uh, Ungoliant and Mo- and Morgoth over the Silmarils, and of course everyone will remember who uh, remembers the Silmarillion that it's the Balrogs who rescue him. Uh, Ungoliant, Mm -hmm. who has uh, uh, grown greatly in power, uh, uh, ensnares Melkor in her webs, and he makes that famous shout, which echoes in the land thereafter. Um, And the Balrogs come to him, and with their whips of flame, they tear apart Ungoliant's uh, uh, strands, and they drive her away. Um, So basically, I'm thinking... Through most of the episode, we have Sauron basically winning the conflict between the two of them and establishing himself as like the big bad in Middle Earth. Um, but then at the end, Gothmog kind of steals a march on him by coming to, to Morgoth's rescue. He's then the one. So then when, when Morgoth comes back, when he returns and he establishes himself at Angband, which I think we should show happening at the very, very end, you know, just like a scene of him entering Angband and establishing himself uh, in Angband at the you know near the very end of the of the season finale of season 2 um yep basically he marches in and Gothmog marches in you know on his right hand as they as they as they come in and Gothmog who has just you know pulled Melkor's personal biscuits out of the fire uh is basically re-cemented as his as his right hand guy um and so the 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 I think the viewers can then be kind of left in uncertainty like where does this leave uh, leave Sauron, actually, because this is one of the things, remember, that we have to deal with. In the Silmarillion, Sauron doesn't really come up at all until the Baron and Luthien story. So he is mm-hmm. going to be kind of shunted aside. Um, you know, and uh, and both because Melkor is personally back and running the show, but, but Gothmog is going to be now, like, really the captain of his armies, and Sauron is going to be kind of, uh, you know, shunted off into, you know, uh, uh, you know, into like a part time employee, essentially. Um, so anyway, so I think um, I think that's that's that can make for a sort of an interesting subplot, which which continues to set up interesting bad guy scenes behind uh, uh, behind the, you know, sort of the main lines. There well, I like
0: the I like the idea of, of subverting people's expectations with mm-hmm. uh, Sauron.
2: Yes, because yeah. he, he looks right. like he's setting himself up as the Dark Lord, right? But okay. really, it's just a teaser. And this is what
0: people expect, especially exactly. if they're if they're coming from a predominantly you know most of their experience with um, Tolkien is Lord of the Rings, particularly the movies. They yeah. think of him as the Dark Lord, so I, I like the idea. of
1: Yeah, like, they're gonna think it's a given. Like once Morgoth gets like taken away, yes. the viewers are gonna automatically go, "Oh, well now Sauron's gonna be in charge."
2: Right. And, yeah.
1: and you no, know. <laughs> right.
2: Exactly. No, Sauron is gonna be the underdog still through most of the whole First Age <laughs> story. Right. Um, right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, So I think that could be. In fact, we could even. I was. uh, I was wondering if we could even maybe introduce. We'll. We'll see how this works and if we can incorporate it. Uh, But the question of him actually getting his name, Sauron. You know, actually being being being. You know, thought of as the accursed by the elves. um, If that could be introduced by the end of this season, like all 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 we would have to do, the orcs wouldn't have to um, invade. But if somebody encounters one, like if they if like. The orcs are discovered essentially by some, some you know, some uh, the Sindar I assume is who would do the discovering, mm-hmm. um, so that they can then find out about this and be shocked by this, and and they could be really focusing on on Sauron as the the guy who did this and uh, the one who is who is the threat to them, because um, they wouldn't even really know or, Morgoth that much.
0: Or how about this, Corey? We could, we could go we – could, we could do an ironic turn and, uh, and pull a Turin Turin bar. We could have Sauron name himself the occurs <laughs> when he's feeling sorry for himself after losing his
2: job. <laughs> oh, oh i love that and then the name that he took for himself is given to him spontaneously by the people just like lsr right the name that he took for himself was given to him by his own people in the end yeah. called him elf stone right that uh uh ex- except it's the evil version of this you know the the uh the the sinister name that he took for himself was spontaneously given to him by his own enemies afterwards um i that that's actually kind of beautiful <imcesso> Hi <laughs> <inte Majorstood responses> <clearedF Tori> I find that immensely amusing. I love that. I love that. Okay. All right, we'll see what we can do. We'll see, we'll, see if, we'll see if we can kind of work this in at all. But it is something, this is definitely like a season-long subplot, you know, what's going on with the bad guys and the development of orcs. We need to keep this up because it, it would be easy to lose sight of this and everything else that's going on. Um, and we need to make sure we don't lose our antagonists <clears throat> so that when we do start unleashing them in season three, it doesn't seem to come from nowhere. Okay, awesome. So that's two items on our list. We're moving right along. I think this is excellent. Um, uh, one quick thing about how much Sindar stuff we're doing, and I've actually I've already been talking about this a little bit. I don't want do to do... Uh, to, I want to save... Some people in the discussion boards were talking about things like, do we, like show Luthien on stage? Do we start getting into, like, Dairon the Minstrel's love for Luthien and stuff? I say no, no. Let's not even go there. Um, Mostly because I want to save it for season three. Remember season three? Um, Season four is when we have the Noldor in Beleriand, so we're getting the Sindar and we're getting the Noldor and all the the councils and everything else. This is where we get um, the highly dramatic uh, uh, depiction of, of Beleriand and his realms and everything. So that's season four stuff. Um, season three is going to be mostly Valinorian focused. I mean, the central story of that is going to be Fanor and the rebellion and the Kinslaying and the burning of the ships and the halkaraxa So uh, the, the the Sindar are going to be, but but we need to keep up with them, right? We need to have some Sindar material so that when we do get, um, you know, when we do get to Thingol and, and everybody else, we haven't totally forgotten about them. Kind of like, you know, the published Silmarillion does. That's exactly how the published Silmarillion works where you follow the Noldor into Valinor and then you're with them for several chapters and then there's just this chapter of the Sindar, right? P.S. here's what was going on in Middle-earth during all that time right? And I don't think we can afford to do that in the series to to structure it that way in the series because if we do it's going to be like two years since people have heard of the Sindar and no one's going to remember them. Um, So So, so anyway, so if we can, so we need to, we need to retain some good Sindar material to have a really substantive and meaty, meanwhile in Middle Earth, subplot throughout the whole, throughout the Feanor show in season three. The Feanor show is still very much the A plot, but we need a strong B plot. Going on in Middle Earth, and again, and that—that that I think is not going to be hard to do. We have we have some interpersonal drama among the Sindar. We have uh, we have we have action sequences. Uh, you know, we, we, so the orcs are attacking, um, and laying siege to them. We've got the dwarves coming in and being introduced, and in the relationship with the dwarves. So we've got lots to do in Middle Earth, um, mm-hmm. and we can be developing. Um, yeah, Brian, we can developing Sauron's story more too. Though remember, Melkor's back. Uh, during that we, we're, we might have to fudge some stuff there by the way right uh, uh, Melkor kind of wasn't back during that whole time uh, but anyway we'll have to uh, we'll have to yeah exactly Marie and the building of Minogroth. But anyway, so 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 I I, I want to establish the Sindar and I you know to, so that we have an identity for them um, and and make sure that we, we we have it sort of known that there is a realm there with Thingol in in Doriath, um, and we had talked about the the saving the building of Menegroth until season three after they met the dwarves and having that be a kind of a defensive measure as the orcs start attacking and I still really like that idea. Um, but but I don't want to. So I I want, I want to save kind of as much of that as we possibly can, um for the next, uh for the the for season three. Okay, all right, we're ripping through stuff now. So thinking back to the Dwarven <laughs> elves for a minute now, um, what what. How are we going to distinguish the Vanyar and the Noldor? We've talked a lot about the Teleri and distinguishing the different branches of the Teleri as they split themselves off in various places. And we talked even about things like what will their cities look like and um, and all that. So, uh, and their cultures. How about the Vanyar and the Noldor? How do we distinguish them? Because the two of them are like joined at the hip from the beginning. Now, you're right, Robert, that we do get... Um, we do get uh the like the you know, the Vanyar the the Vanyar are blonde and the Noldor are brunettes, but that's not really uh that's not really the chief distinction. I mean, that can't be totally uniform. I mean it's gonna be really visually dull if it's just like a hundred percent blonde and Aryan Vanyar and a hundred percent, you know, dark haired, pale faced um Noldor. Um Tom Hillman suggests that the Vanyar all wear T-shirts that say "I'm with Manwë." Uh, that I think is a good suggestion. Um, it's just the kind of T-shirt the Vanyar would wear. I think that really kind of strikes me uh, as a Vanyar thing to do. Um, but I agree. So obviously, the the hair color thing can totally be a trend, and that's you know that that's something that 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 will create a visual uh, distinction. But yeah, I want to think about culture as well. Now, Maria's right to remind us that. Um, although both of them are makers, they are makers in very different modes. Poetry is the Vanyar's thing, and uh, 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 craftsmanship, physical craftsmanship, uh, especially metalworking and gemsmithing, is the thing um, of the Noldor. But remember, the Noldor aren't just gemsmiths and metalsmiths. They also do things like weaving, uh, and even things like the you know the, the making of the making of scripts. Uh, uh, Marie, I think, was calling for a a, a cameo of Rúmil. Um,
1: I yeah. that cracked me up.
2: Yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> I, 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 I I agree, Marie. I, I will I will only give Rumel a cameo if we can agree that we depict Rumel just like he's depicted in the first volume of the Book of Lost Tales, uh, when he's this like wild, kooky, uh, 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 strange, funny guy. I totally I totally want to. Uh, 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 that's that's I I. I, I Rumil is the crazy eccentric, like he is in The Book of Lost Tales. That's totally, totally the Rumil I want. Not not some boring scholar. Um, and, yeah, Maria, I, we, we were joking about this before we started the show, that, like, we, we can think of no more compelling drama to present to the general American public uh, than... You know, a squabble between two different scholars who are advocating two different styles of scripts for representing <laughs> elvish alphabets. Uh, that that really that really has public appeal written all over it, I have to say. <laughs> um, but uh, but but yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely I, I mean, honestly, Marie, I do see the, the context in which I see introducing Rumil. Is remember there's like one episode in which we're gonna have to be getting something like a montage of like the youth of Feanor um, because we we, we want to touch on like Feanor, the 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 prodigy, as he's growing up. Um, uh, and I think that that's one thing that we can do is to have him, uh, because uh, remember, it, it was in his youth, it was like a middle school, uh. It was like a middle school project that for Feanor when he invented, uh, when he invented his new characters. Uh, so I think that would be that that would totally be a fun context in which to uh, to introduce Rumil. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. So isn't that good TV, Brian? That's what I'm thinking, right? You know, the battle of the like but which script will ultimately be adopted to represent the Elvish alphabet? Like that's going to be the question everyone's going to be asking around the water cooler the next day. Right. I mean, that's, that's clearly, uh, that's clearly what, what, what gets people coming back. Um, yes, definitely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That's pretty much, that's pretty much, I think been the secret of the success of game of Thrones is exactly that kind of plot line. Um, uh, (laughs) though I guess the people debating it in the game of Thrones Mini series would be topless at the time, presumably, um, or surrounded by topless women, one or the other. But uh, anyway, that's probably not the kind of appeal we're going to be going for. It's just the pure linguistic scholarship that we think really has that kind of sex appeal. Um, Who needs, right? Who needs uh, bedroom scenes when you can have, you know, hot philological debate instead? So I think it's all. I think it's like Tom Hillman says in the game of runes you win or you die <laughs> exactly exactly the game of runes in fact, that sounds like an episode title, doesn't it? Game of runes come on now that's mm-hmm. too good to that's too good to miss I think I agree <laughs> anyway okay okay, all right anyway, so but back to the Vanyar. so um, would we have a difference in how they in how they I'm thinking they should be less differentiated at the beginning and should become more differentiated as we go through. Because, of course, uh, our focus is going to be shifting towards the Noldor in the second half of the season as we get the unchaining of Melkor and the unrest of the Noldor and the forging of the Silmarils. So um, we... uh, I think it would be okay in the earlier times to have them apart from the, you know, we, we there, there, there can be, you know, again, like the hair color trend thing. Um, but, um, um, uh, but I think, uh, uh, I, I, I think that we can have them looking and dressing pretty much alike at the beginning because they are kind of a unit all the way through. But once they get to Valinor, Um, Because remember, it's not until they get to Valinor that the Noldor start doing the gem thing, and especially if we're going to make a big deal about the gems later on, which we have every reason to do in the whole Silmaril context. um, I think that we could, we could use that as a, as a, as a distinguishing point. Um, While the, you know, Vanyar are off, uh, uh, you know, reciting poetry, the, uh, the Noldor can be forging gems and, and that, that distinction, the, the wearing of gems, um, can become a very distinctive Noldor thing early on, initially to distinguish them from the Vanyar, uh, f- for us. And then of course, down the road, it becomes the issue with the Sindar. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Brian Fatterini is arguing for a, uh, 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 we should uh make the vanyar uh speak in uh in like in in blank verse uh in iambic pentameter uh, that would be subtle but noticeable you know brian i actually think we could kind of well, i would say this brian at the very least any dialogue we give to the vanyar has to be very carefully constructed um and with with a greater um with a greater ear to you know, uh, uh, cadence and euphony than it would, than we would for other characters. I'm kind of thinking we could actually get, I'm not saying we go full out Tom Bombadil with the Vanyar, but you know, like how Tom Bombadil often speaks in prose, except it's not really in prose. I mean, it still has all of the cadence of his, you know, trochaic hexameter poetry. Um, We don't have to go quite as emphatically as Tom Bombadil does because he's always speaking in verse but we could do something like that. I mean, I, I would think any dialogue that we give to the Vanyar, we would really have to, uh, it would have to at least come sort of close to scanning basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no Korea, they clearly would not use the Tom Bombadil, uh, meter. And the reason they wouldn't use the Tom Bombadil meter is that they would not spend as much of their time jumping and skipping around. That's really, I think <laughs> the origin of the Tom Bombadil meter. Um, <coughs> uh, that's why I mean, think about it. It it's it sounds like a skip, you know, the like "ho, oh, Tom Bombadil" at the beginning. The way that it's not just trochaic, but the way that it starts with, um, with, uh, uh, you know, with with the repeated stresses like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and they don't talk about their own clothing as much as Tom Bombadil either. Um. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, by the way, the Vanyar verse is obviously, I mean, I think it goes without saying that the Vanyar mostly speak in iambic heptameter. I mean, obviously, um, what in the Lord of the Rings is basically elf meter, um, the meter that Galadriel, um, recites in the meter that, like, the Nimrodel song is in, right? And curse the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel. Um, that sort of seven-beat line is, that's, obviously, I- Iambic heptameter is, is what the the Vanyar speak in. So those of you who are thinking about, uh, da, no, Tralalalali, not the Vanyar. Brian, the Vanyar, not the Tralalalali elves. Those are Noldor, really. Um uh, so It's and, pretty
0: fantastic.
2: And, and, and like the Green Elves. I mean, remember that the Green Elves, When uh, we don't have the Green Elves yet, but the Nandor who come across the Blue Mountains into Osirian, that's going to be a Season 3 thing. We're not doing them in this season at all, so we're not worrying about them right now. But when they come, they're going to come in in Season 3, at the beginning of Season 3, and they're going to be the Tralalalali Elves it's called lindor that's why it's called uh, that's that's why it's that's why it's called that it's the land of singing because um, they sing all the time um so they're mm-hmm. totally la la and uh uh and they could be uh, yeah absolutely okay um so uh so 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 there we are that's that's we've now solved the crucial issue of what meter the Vanyar will speak in, so I think that's that pretty much solves solve the problem. But I do think that the Vanyar should be, like their appearance, should be plain and especially contrasting with the Noldor as time goes on, increasingly almost severe. Not that they would exactly wear something like a monk's habit, but something quite close to it, like plain, simple white robes or blue robes, um, blue being Manwe's color, um and uh, uh, but with very very little uh, ornament or decoration, um, as uh, as as time goes on. So, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, and Marie, yes, increasingly sort of mystical, yeah, like the, the contemplative. So again, more of a kind of a monastic feel, I would say, for the Vanyar and their culture, especially as they move from Tyrion to. Uh, to Niquitil, because remember, they live with the Noldor at first, and I think that this is something that we can that we can incorporate, is that basically the two of them sort of start off together as time goes on, as that is, as they're in Valinor, the distinction between the Vanyar and the Noldor becomes increasingly one of the, the Noldor focusing on their crafts and their craftsmanship, and therefore, like, their ornamentation, like, things will get fancier and fancier with the Noldor, because they're making stuff. Um... And the Vanyar will be simplifying more and more, becoming more contemplative, uh, and uh, and eventually, and and the and, and you know in their dress and in their ways more simple. And this is why, in the end, they don't keep living in the same city anymore because they're moving. it. So you know, the, the Vanyar decide what they really want is to get away from all of the sort of you know the 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 pomp and fanciness of the Noldor uh, life, and they move up onto Tinequital and live this sort of. Monastic and contemplative existence up there, um, and uh, um, and the Noldor, Tyrion just becomes increasingly gorgeous as uh, as as times as time go on. T- time goes on. Um, oh, that's really interesting, Brian. I like the idea of the Vanyar having short hair, because yes, you're right. Peter Jackson has created this vision of all elves being long haired right there aren't any short haired elves Um, but I like that idea um, again especially being with the like sort of increasingly s- simple and severe the Noldor I think would tend to have long hair um, because you can do more fancy stuff with long hair right I mean like like the craft of hair braiding you know is, is like that's going to be a Noldor thing right anything which requires skill and you know can be a vehicle for the expression of like beauty through ornament and, and kind of complex working is something the Noldor would be interested in right so Yes, I would think that um, for people who like this kind of thing, there could be some elaborate uh, hair styling going on among the Noldor. Whereas, yes, I could see the Vanyar becoming like almost crew cut by the end. Absolutely. We don't want to make them look ascetic to the point of being like flagellants or something. I mean, we don't want to create that kind of atmosphere, um, you know, like they're starving themselves and whipping themselves in their closets or anything. But um but just just like simplicity, just the simple life essentially. Um uh so that the and, and that the gap between them and the the Noldor we would become would become increasingly um uh stark. Tom Hillman is suggesting that fan or ultimately sports a hairdo, uh, sort of similar, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to count Dracula's hairdo in the Francis Ford Coppola film, uh, that, uh, the Dracula students in the Mythgard Academy were so marveling at. I'm not sure I really want to go with the, like, I have a set of buttocks on my head hairdo that Dracula had there, but, um, but yeah, something terrible. complicated, something complicated would be fine. <laughs> Corita, Tom says that that is not okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Brian, exactly. By the end, at the end of the time, I do think that Tyrion should, uh, the, the the city of Tyrion upon Tuna should start looking like Versailles. It, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and it doesn't have to be in the same style, of course, but like level of gorgeousness. Absolutely. Um, because remember, one of the things that we're wanting to show is the Noldor getting off track. And one of the things that is such a recurring theme in Tolkien's works is how this desire to be a sub-creator, this desire to be a maker, is itself a very, very good thing, but it 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 leads to going bad. I mean, it's the big sub-creators who go bad. It's Melkor and Sauron and Feanor who go worst of all the people. Um, and, and, you know, that, that basically there is always... There is always this temptation, there's always this pitfall in the way of sub-creators. And so yes, we can we can signal this. Um the uh the the increasing gaudiness which will kind of merge over to arrogance um on the part of the Noldor by the end of season uh, of season two. Uh and which really breaks out at the beginning of season three is I think really something that we can that we can do. Um so uh uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick is wondering if, if that declines in Tyrion after the Faenorians leave. Well, of course, uh, the story almost never gets back to that. But, Nick, I do think it would be interesting um, if we did show at least once or twice at various points. I don't know exactly when and in what context we would do this, but I think it would be interesting to show Tyrion at, you know, with Faenorfin as king. Later on, mm-hmm. you know, Finarfin ruling the the remnant of the Noldor, and to have a more kind of, to to give a glimpse of a kind of a more temperate Noldor culture, uh, Noldor there.
0: back on track.
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, so again, it's not like they've become all simplistic and ascetic like the vanyar because it's not who they are. Um, but um, but that it would it would there should be a, vis- a a visible difference. You know, we should be able to notice, like the stuff that Finarfin has had taken down, uh, since, since that time. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see. Uh, oh, that's an interesting moment. Tom Hillman, uh, says we could show it when Finrod reincarnates. Yeah, we do get that reference to Finrod walking, uh, with his father in Valinor after his death. Um, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Of course, you know, we will have excuses to think about Elvish, uh, you know, re embodiment during the course of the later bits of this season to some extent. But anyway, yeah, we'll, 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 see. yeah, there's certainly moments, and it, it doesn't have to be in this season, Tom, as you're suggesting. I mean, that would be in season five, the Baron and Luthian season when Finrod dies. Um, so, yeah, that we're, we're talking about several years down the road. And yes, Nick, of course, absolutely. the feature on Tyrion on the post feonorian Tyrion would be when A. Arendel gets there, uh but of course, by that time, everybody who started watching the show with us is all going to be like all you know gray haired and withered, and so they'll barely remember it by you know their 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 children will have to remind them of uh what happened back in season one and two at that point so uh but yeah, yeah, um. Anyway, yep, yeah. so no, th- there will definitely be opportunities for that. Okay, so that's good. What about uh, Tol Arasea and Aqualande? Remember the Noldor are instrumental. They help, they build Alqualondë, And they also scatter their gems upon the seashore and everything, so... There should be lots of fanciness in Alqualondë, which is basically derivative of the Noldor.
1: Oh, I like the evocation of Venice. Nick Palazzo, make, make it Venetian.
2: Venetian, yeah, yeah. Um, or
1: Brian, like a Sicilian seaside town, yeah.
2: Yes, yes. It should be very much... Um, and I wonder if we could even make... Uh, That would be kind of interesting, actually, to have a sort of a visual or architectural architectural tension between what the Teleri build themselves and where they actually live and the bits that the Noldor built for them. Right. We could have like the Noldor build them some like beautiful, like sweeping towers and things. But then the rest of the city kind of doesn't fit with those towers because they they're not really interested in that. Like they're, you know, no end grateful of the stuff that the Noldor came down and built for them. But we could. act. But what they really want is to be out on the water. Right. So we could have <laughs> we could even have. Okay, I mean, we talked about this on last time, have a really beautiful and kind of sophisticated sort of, uh, you know, quasi lake town deal. Right. With them actually built it, building out onto the water and stuff. Um, and uh, and really living kind of in touch with the water and not just not just having a port, but really uh, but really being connected like that. Um, and uh, um, uh, anyway, um, that that. that um, but, but again, then then like inland or, you know, on the on the actual coast, you have these. You know these the, these these mighty buildings that were that were constructed by the Noldor, and which I think I think would be kind of fun to make that kind of visually not fit together, um, so that we can see the, the the sort of disjunction between the Noldor. Because again, remember, whenever everything we do in Alqualondë has to be done with the kinslaying in mind. I mean, the kinslaying is like the culminating moment for Alqualondë, um, and so that's why I'm that that's what kind of leads me to say have have some kind of submerged noldor teleri tension like that the noldor have never gotten the teleri right they 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 don't fully understand them um and this comes out i mean it comes out very clearly in the debate between fanor and 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 the teleri right when he asks for their help and for their ships and um and and then you know lays upon them like hey dude like you know, in huts by the shore, you would still be dwelling if it, if it were not for the, for the Noldor, um, you know, and they would be like, we actually kind of, we wanted to live in huts by the shore. We didn't ask you to build those big stupid towers, which we barely use anyway. So, you know, I mean, I, that kind of, that kind of thing, you know, s- uh, sowing the seeds for what's going to be happening in the Kinslaying, I think, um, is something we need to do as we are doing uh, Alqualondë. Um, Brian is wondering, would they pull the towers down? Um, I would think not, just because they'd be reconciled to Finarfin. Remember, Finarfin is like, you know, the embodied liaison. But he's he's married to the daughter of alway, right? So I mean, he is he is extremely close uh, to the Teleri of Alquilande. Um, so when he comes back and sets up a, so I don't think they would pull down the towers or something basically out of respect to Finarfin and, and, in recognition to the fact that, uh, after Feanor and the rest of them leave and Finarfin returns, Finarfin and the rest of the Noldor are going to be in peace with, uh, with the Teleri and the Teleri are going to be fine with that. Um, but, uh. But, uh, ooh, what a fascinating idea. Nick Palazzo has the awesome suggestion that those buildings that the Teleri build um, could be places where the, the returning exiles wind up. Uh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, what about Toleracea? So if we have, have Alquilande as this sort of division between the, 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 the beautiful inland constructions that have been made for their benefit um but not wholly appreciated by them by the Noldor and the the, the much simpler um and much more aquatic focused portions of the city how about Tol Eressëa cuz Tol is not constructed by the Noldor
0: Hmm So we want it to look we want it to look demonstrably different
2: I would think so. Remember, Tol Arisea is the island that's going to be called Elvenhome, and this is going to be mm-hmm. where the exiles are going to be returning to. Um, from
0: does it does it have a, a, a sort of a more? Okay, so two questions. One, should it have a more Toleri look? Um, so you know, obviously, <laughs> should it, should it be like a seaside beach yeah. town, Southern yeah. California. <laughs>
1: <laughs> more like that. yeah, yeah, hammocks, hammocks and palm
2: trees. Yes. Hammocks and, and the or
0: they're walking around in board shorts.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, exactly.
0: But I, I, also wonder, I also wonder because the island itself was originally um, plucked, was was yes. selected by Ase, right? So yes. maybe, maybe it doesn't even necessarily look Elvish or constructed at all, but looks more. I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking, uh,
1: first of all, I'm thinking a, a pronounced lack of ostentation, yeah. right? It, it, to, you know, in, in contrast to the Noldor. And the other thing is kind of like along the lines of what Dave just said, make it like a cliff, cliff towns, you know, kind of like in Cornwall yeah. or even the more colorful ones, you know, the Italian like Cinqueteri, <laughs> you know, the, that are built on cliff sides. In fact, the whole, it could all be cliffs. In other words, the, the island could be quite steep. Yes. You know, so there's not yes. a lot of inland building.
2: Well remember, this is the island that was designed this is the ferry boat island. Right? I mean this is the right. island that was it's not a natural island. It's an island that's like ripped up and put and you and and, and you know shoved around um by ossey in order to trans I mean this this island is designed for transportation, so I agree, Trish, it could it's not gonna have like sloping beaches and stuff. Right because it's not a natural island. It's just like a big old chunk of rock with soil on top presumably because right. they're, they're going to live right. on it for a long time. Um, so there, the, you know, there, there can, there can be grass and trees and stuff on the top of the Island. Um, but I think showing that it was like torn away from another mass of, of, uh, of, of, land and therefore has, um, you know, sharp cliff sides where you can see like the bit that was broken off, you know, it just kind of comes to a very sudden end. That to me makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's, it was never designed to be a home. It was never designed to be uh, to be the this a sort of uh, uh, again it's it was it was designed as a ferry boat, and in the end they didn't want to leave it because they didn't want to leave Ase behind, and so Ase rooted it uh, in you know off the coast of Valinor. Um, so yeah, yeah, having it be having it be
1: um, yeah um, like a recent volcanic island that's another idea Robert Brown has. Chris Graham, I think Chris Graham's idea of having some sort of lighthouse edifice.
2: True. Though, is remember, awesome. the major lighthouse thing that we have is in Tyrion, actually. the the tower, oh, that's true. The, the, the big tower no, with the light uh, in, yeah. in Tyrion. Um, which means that's I true. think that Tyrion, when we say like that... that uh, in my mind... Um, okay. I grew up in New England. So when Tolkien uses the word hill, I have a particular idea of a hill. And to me, a hill is a kind of a very Appalachian, very, like, gradual little knoll, essentially. Um, I don't think that's what Tolkien meant when he used the word hill, um, as, like, all of my own travels and wanderings about in the UK ha- give me a very different idea of what a hill is, like what a tor is, for instance. Is I don't, I've never seen, never seen anything like a tour in New England, uh, like an English tour. But anyway, I so I basically I think that we should have Tyrion, uh, the the hill of Tuna should be it, it should be set up, above so that as you come into the harbors, you know as you come in towards Aquilande, Tyrion uh, the city of Tyrion is right there, like up 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 above. It should be steeply up hill, um, on uh on on a on a promontory, basically, really almost over the over the the the. Harbor like the Bay of Elvenholm, essentially, um, so that the Tower of Tyrion is—that's the major lighthouse that—and so the light uh, from the Minden is, you know, is able to basically extend over pretty much the entire Bay of Elvenholm there. Um, so we have we have that kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, that that role of lighthouse kind of occupied, but I do like. Um, uh, and and this this also of course emphasizes the harmony in with which the Noldor are supposed to be living with the Teleri, right? Because you know Alqualondë is down on the shore and Tyrion is right up behind them, so it's not like they live in like the next land over, right? I mean, like you can see their city right from right from the shore. I mean, the the the, the two their their dwellings are really set right next to each other, um. But um, yeah. <laughs> Karina says she she grew up in Indiana, so when she hears hill, she just shrugs because she's she's only heard about those things in stories and songs. Um, yeah, I, I.
1: Nick Nick I Palazzo has thing. a cool idea. The the Toleracea could be the result of the volcanic eruption Melkor uses to show off to Asei, so somehow make it recognizable. I don't know how we would do that, but it'd be kind of interesting. Oh to... yeah,
2: the the Asei Melkor scene when he uh-huh, we've got him uh-huh. ripping up the coastline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, how cool would that be to have Osei like rip off a big chunk of the land just like for fun and kind of shove it out to sea. Um and then when it's time to ferry the elves, we see Osei go back for it, right? And he takes and like, Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, yeah. I I, I know just the thing, right? I I've got I've, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's
0: that was that was my plan all along.
2: <laughs> exactly. But yeah, no, that the, the idea of like this thing that was done in rebellion being used to serve the larger purpose, that's that strikes me as a very, very awesome. Tolkien yeah. thing, actually. We could, even you know.
1: do, we could even do I might be a little cheesy, but just to remind viewers, you know, have a little short flashback. A little
2: flashback or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. Or or we could cheat the way that uh, the way that so many shows seem to do now the like previously on the Silmarillion film project. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's, right, that's <laughs> to right. incorporate a flashback that way. Uh, anyway. Um, okay. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Okay. All right. So so I'm thinking. So following up with Tol Arisaia now. Um, what what if we? There's no city on Tol Arisaia? There can be later on, like later on when the exiles return to it, they can build a city there. But what if the, when the Teleri are there, they don't have a city at all? They just like live in more almost Avari style huts and things because it's just a temporary thing. They're not building a city. They're they're not going to do urban planning on the ferryboat island, right? Um, so yeah. I think
0: they should all stay in uh, hostels.
2: <laughs> in the hostels, yeah, it's like Airbnb on sale. That's pretty much that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty much what's going to be happening. Yeah. Perfect. No, but 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 seriously, they um that they, they they have no fixed home. I mean, they could even just be dwelling. They can be dwelling in trees. They can be. But and 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 uh, this is not to say uh, anything against Trish or other. Idea. I like the cliff dwellings ideas because they're looking out at the sea. Right, they're staying close to the sea, and that's because that's what they love. Um, and even looking back towards Middle Earth. In fact, we could even have we could even sort of show like. They go over to the western part of the island to look towards Valinor because they're still drawn into the west to Valinor, and they still really like that and want that. But they also go back to the east and look towards Middle Earth. Um, so having that, uh, having that orientation, I think is, uh, um, you know, it definitely provides some opportunities. Okay, all right, good. So they're not living like a rudimentary existence, but they don't have any urban. Po- that actually makes me. That actually makes me. Uh, Makes me happy uh, not to have to plan a city uh, there. Um, So cool. All right. Um, We're only 10 minutes over now. So let's start talking about characters. (laughs) Um, uh, I want to, and I think we can do this in a sort of a restricted way. Um, That is, we'll have plenty of time to develop personalities and to talk about incidents and stories. And we've already digressed onto that already in some ways. What do we want people to look like? Thinking about, you know, as, we, as we, we're giving people sort of fuel for casting and stuff, I'm thinking Feanor, of course, is going to be the big deal. Remember, Feanor, Feanor has to be hot. Again, that's non-negotiable. I mean, Feanor is the, the, supposed to be, like, the most beautiful. He, Fanor has the highest charisma of any elf ever, and we have to show that. You know, we can't make Feanor into this, like, grumpy, unappealing dude. That just can't happen. Um, so how do we picture Feanor? Sort of generally his personality and his physical appearance. Yeah, Marie, I agree. His voice, especially. Marie says his voice has to be to die for. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, the key thing about Feanor, he's brilliant. Right. So he has to be, you know, he's he's obviously um, he's also very smart and he's enormously skilled, but he has to be just, I mean, like enormously high charisma. Some people will be resentful against him. um, But. um, But but he has to be appealing. I mean, we, this, and this is, you know, just like from the beginning, we've been talking about how important it is to resist making Melkor a, you know, a black-hatted villain from day one. Similarly, too, we cannot make Feanor look like uh, a a hopeless, hateful jerk from day one. Um, If we succeed, um, remember that scene in the Silmarillion where after the rebellion of Feanor, we we were told that the Valar are, Gathered together in Valmar, and they're weeping for the death of the trees and for the darkening of Valinor, but as much they're weeping for the marring of Feanor. We want our viewers to be weeping for the marring of Feanor in season three. Mm -hmm. By the end of season three, when he dies, we want everybody to be just devastated at this awesome, wonderful, incredibly high potential guy gone bad. Um, and what a horrible, horrible tragedy it was, and what he might have accomplished and all you know everything else right this is um uh so yeah, we do need to set him up as a he can't be he can't be arrogant and annoying as a child, he can't be overweening as a teenager, you know we can't we 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 we've gotta um uh, we can, now, uh, uh, Carita and Marie are, are, are looking in similar directions. Both of them talking about uh, having him be sort of uh, high energy and impatient, uh, restless body language, Carita says. I agree with that. And intense eyes, high focus, says Marie. Um, yes, yes. Brian suggests, very interestingly, that we should draw parallels with young Estelle. Um, that's very cool. Um, I like it. That's very cool. Absolutely, we should. Um, especially that's perfect since I was suggesting, uh, at the beginning of the season, which seems like a long time ago, it was only a couple of weeks ago, um, that we should have, uh, season three, um, Aragorn be the, be the, the primary interlocutor, you know, the, the young teenage Aragorn, um, you know, so we'll be doing the, the adventures of teenage Aragorn as the frame narrative of the Feanor season of season three. Um, and, ha- and and I was thinking that of having having a kind of a parallel, the the story of Fanor should be, you know, one of its functions should be as a cautionary tale for Aragorn himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, planting the seeds of that here in season two, and we do have young Estelle in season one in the frame of season one, and so we can establish some, uh, you know, sort of visual parallels between the two of them in the young Fanor scenes that we show. I like that a lot. Um, do we want him to be really tall? Should he physically tower over people? I think it should be just sort of strength of personality. Um, not He doesn't necessarily have to be really tall, I think. He shouldn't be really short. I mean, like, like I, like I, my problem with John Rhys-Davies is Henry VIII and the Tudors. Like, I just couldn't get over how short that guy is. And, like, Henry VIII just cannot be the shortest guy in the room every single time. Like, that's just... You can have as much, as forceful a personality as you like. You just can't be Henry VIII and be the shortest person in the room. Like, that's just... That was part of who he was. Um. <laughs> Marie Prosser just, just drops, you know. Uh, you know, just, like... As a as an idle comment that Tom Hiddleston is six foot two. Yeah. Okay, I hear you, Marie. I hear you. I hear you. Um, Just by the by. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, we do have this trend of significant people in Tolkien being taller than the other people around them. I mean, that's something that's very observable um, in as a trend uh, in Tolkien's writings. Um, uh, Marie Brianna responds that she wants Tom Hiddleston for Beleg So we'll let you guys fight over this in the forums. But um, I've I've long known that there was no way we were going to be avoiding casting Tom Hiddleston in some role or other uh, in uh, in the film film project. But um, uh, we'll have to well, again, we'll get there eventually. Um, yeah, but I don't think Fanor. I think he can't be short, but he doesn't absolutely have to be really tall. What do you guys think about Finway? And Finway's character. Finway is the High King of the Noldor. He's the he's the original High King of the Noldor. Um, he's one of the three ambassadors. He's Fanor's dad. Um, but don't you get the, the impression that he's a bit of a milksop? I mean...
1: Oh, it's funny. I've always pictured him burly with red hair a uh, ginger. You know, red hair and beard. Close-cropped beard. I don't know why. Um... <laughs>
0: Interesting, interesting.
1: I don't know why that
2: is. He could be, brave, yeah, kind of. He, he would mean, actually I be. Mean, I just mean in character in personality. Maybe
1: character-wise,
2: yeah. Early, yeah. but
1: not muscular, maybe. Like you the, know? Way in,
2: the way in which yeah. he indulgent goes, indulgent father. Indulgent father, yes. Uh, indulgent yeah. father. Uh, there's even this sort of. I mean, like that. His remarriage, of course, is a big deal. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and which seems to like. Uh, at the very least, one could say he seems not to have really thought that through fully. Should we? Right.
0: Should we make his second wife like sort of a conniving? A wicked stepmother. Wicked
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. A wicked stepmother. Wicked stepmother. Or we could have make... her be a really, really good stepmother, but Feanor thinks she's a wicked stepmother. Um, right. Uh, yeah, I mean of course remember this is the mother of Fingolfin and Fenarfin who are both really awesome stand up guys. So we can't make her be you know, she can't be like Cinderella's stepmother. Um or else we're gonna we're gonna paint uh, we're gonna paint uh, Fingolfin and, and Fenarfin into the wicked stepsister role. Yeah. So I don't think that Indus can be horrible. Uh but uh but Fanor Is gonna. I mean, in fact, it would be kind of interesting. It's it's one way that we can begin to show. It's I think that seems to me the place where we can really begin to show kind of the cracks in Feanor's character, um, where he he his objections to Indus and him his his kind of revolting against her, his characterization of her as the wicked. You know, he clearly sees her as a wicked stepmother. But if the audience can really see the gap between uh, um, between how he sees her and how she kind of really seems to be. Um, But um, but yeah, I agree, Marie. She clearly has to be very different from Muriel. Absolutely. Um, Muriel, the first wife. Uh, So, yeah, if Fanor's mom, Um, there needs to be a really big contrast there. Um, but anyway, when I, so when I talk about weakness in Finway's character, I mean, the guy never takes a stand, Uh, you know? And and, I mean, his, his abdication is, I mean, it's, you know, Feanor is of course very largely at fault for what happens with the Noldor, but you can blame Finway for a lot, actually. You know, the, 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 the thing that he pulls when, um, when when uh, Feanor draws his sword on Fingolfin and is banished and Finway kind of sulks about it, you know, he doesn't discipline his son or stay. You no, know, he's just like, well, if you banish my son, you banish me too. So I'm going to go and live with my son in exile and like abandon all of my people and my duties to be their king and their leader. And I'm just going to kind of go uh, and sort of sympathize with my Banished son who was obviously in the wrong in this situation, and then worse, Fanor gets called back, and Finway stays. He's like, I'm yeah. not going to go back. I'm just going to stay here because I mean, I wasn't commanded to come. And so, so like, what's he doing? Like, still, I, I, like, what's his attitude up there in Forman? And of course, it gets him killed. Like, that's why he's slain uh, by Melkor, and Melkor takes the Silmarils because he's still, like, he's still sulking there and at Formanos. So, um. So, yeah, I can we we find a way to depict
0: him so he doesn't look like a complete doofus?
2: Well, that's just it. I mean, I do think that his weakness can be a can be playing a major role. I mean, I think that that we should have our audience concluding that, you know, his lack of leadership uh, is one of the things that really contributes to the whole I mean he's basically letting his sons in this conflict between his sons run rampant I mean you know there's this whole debate about like who is closer to our father you or me and no one is like hey I know let's ask dad I mean like where the heck is Finway when Fëanor is drawing his sword on Fingolfin why does that situation even come up you know I mean it's just he's just not there you know so um so yeah, I, I but, but you're right. We do need to be careful not to just make him look like a complete idiot. Um, uh, Doofus is not what we want to be projecting with him. But that's something that we need to think about carefully. Um, weak, I think. I mean, he is weak. Um, but uh, But that's something to be thinking about as we move along how we want to do that. But just so in thinking about his character and physically how we present him, we want to keep that kind of weakness and he, he seems to be like the King who's always lurking in the background. Um, and he, he is of course, you know, Brian, you're right. This is the guy who traversed middle earth to see Valinor, but you know, Brian, what I'm kind of thinking, remember he was Elway's close friend, Finway and Elway, you know, Finway and, and, and the dude who will be thingle, uh were close friends. I'm kind of tempted at the very beginning when the three of them are together to show Finway, basically always like palling around. He's like Elway's yes, man you know uh uh when they're hanging like elway is the stronger character and that finway is kind of always going along he's like the guy who's always agreeing with what elway says he yeah yeah exactly brian he is the hanger on that's exactly how i how i see that um but uh so yeah so having him kind of be sort of weak but he has to be weak without being a cipher and without being a doofus so that's our that's our that's our challenge there um Fingolfin and Finarfin. Finarfin has to be the quiet, gentle peacemaker without being completely boring and 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 uh, uh, and insipid. That's the real challenge with Finarfin. And I think, you know, sort of making Finarfin really a strong character, um, a strong, but but not for like strong, but not forceful. Right. Um, strong, but strong, because in the end, what Finarfin is going to do is going to be really remarkable. I mean, the repentance of Phenarfin is a big deal, and you can make the argument that what Fenarfin does in repenting and coming back and uh, and uh, you know reconciling with the Teleri and repenting to the Valar, uh, you know, requires more intestinal fortitude than anything the rest of the Noldor do off in Middle Earth fighting Melkor. Um, but it's a different kind of fortitude, right? It's it's, it's a different kind of strength of character. Um, so we need to be thinking about Finarfin, and, and again, all of this stuff relates to casting and stuff as well. This is these are the kinds of things I want you know. To, I want to be reminding people of what these characters are going to be doing and how we want to present them. Um, yeah, Brian, strong in the way that Manway is strong. Yeah, a parallel between Finarfin and Manway uh, is 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 cool. Even having Finarfin repeating uh, in season. Two. well this would be in season 3 actually uh, some of the things that manway said in season 1 i think would be really good um and uh, um fingolfin how do you do how do we do fingolfin he's obviously more rash than finarfin i mean he's going to die in one of the famous fits of rashness of any of the elves of the elder days right going riding off uh, and challenging Melkor to single combat um, and he's the one who stands up to Feanor.
1: So for sure he would be brash. I mean, you know, like yes. impulsive.
2: Yes, but not dumb. I mean, you know, we can't make no. him just like the loose cannon, right? He can't just be like the crazy brother who's, you know, he, he's he got to be solid and he's a good leader. In some ways I see Fingolfin as being, I mean, he's the next high king of the Noldor. He's like the the, the, the leader that Finway should have been basically. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah, forthright Chris, I agree. Um, yeah, Nick, exactly. He, he's not like Tolkis. Um, I mean, there's like, a, there's a, there's a, a yeah, rash ration, ration and, and, and bold, um, but not just kind of impulsive and carefree, basically. That's not how I see Fingolfin at all. Um, Yes, Marie, I agree. Fingolfin should be the most kingly of the four, right? Finway, Fingolfin, Finarfin, and Feanor. Uh, Fingolfin should be the one who is most kingly. I think that that's a good way to to depict him. Yeah, yeah. Very great personal bravery. We will see that in him standing up against um, Fingolfin. Right, he's the one who stands up to or to to Feanor. He's the one who stands up to Feanor, and then Finarfin is the one who sort of speaks quietly against him, um, mm-hmm. you know, quietly and, and persuasively against him. Uh, I think that, that 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 works really well. I think that Finarfin should be the physically smallest of the of them. Fingolfin should probably be the most physically imposing of all four of them. Certainly of the three brothers. I would wa- I would actually want Fingolfin to be more physically imposing than Fëanor. Fëanor is flashier, right? Fëanor is should be more attractive if we can if we can arrange it. Again, Fëanor should be by far the devastating... if if there's going to be a heartthrob in that family, it's got to be Fëanor. Right? Fëanor has got to be gorgeous. If 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 we can arrange gorgeous, it's got to be we've got to do that for Fëanor. But Fingolfin can be the one who is really physically imposing. Um, and can be kind of rougher in appearance, I would think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, hmm. I want to throw... Yeah, out. see?
1: I'm telling you! Uh, oh, I thought you were, you were thinking about whether we have time to do anything else. <laughs>
2: I am. I am. I'm thinking about... Go- uh, okay, I'll just mention it. There's the Goadreal issue. Um, oh, no. There's the Goadreal issue. We've got, like, four minutes at least, so I'll talk about Galadriel, because um, that should be all it takes. Um, <coughs> I In my uh, Unfinished Tales class in the Mythgard Academy, which I talk, you know, in my class on the... Uh, The Of Galadriel and Celeborn... Chapter of Unfinished Tales is in That's an enormously complicated chapter. Christopher Tolkien himself, in the introduction to that chapter, says that there is no element of the Middle-earth story which is more convoluted, tangled, and hard to figure out than the Galadriel and Celeborn story um, because Tolkien had such radical revisions of it at different time and never worked it all out. Um, from my point of view, I actually just reread that this past week. I'm, 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 I'm rereading Unfinished Tales currently. Um. Just reread The Quest of Erebor yesterday, actually, and uh, anyway, so I just like literally a few days ago reread the Galadriel and Celeborn chapter, and I was thinking in the in a film 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 direction all the way through as I was rereading it, and my main thought was, this is awesome because basically it means we can pick and choose, like we can do we can make Galadriel and Celeborn literally anything we want them to be, um, and and we would have textual warrant for it because. <laughs> There are different versions when he makes them all kinds of different things. So my personal plan, uh, as I was, as I was listening to it again, I was like, okay, this is, um, we can just, we can just pick from the smorgasbord of Goadriel and Caliborn and, and choose all the awesomest moments and, uh, and, and, and create from that, you know, this sort of unified, awesome story in one of the versions, um, Galadriel, uh, is like basically so the question with Goadriel Goadriel's there um you know she she's she's going to be she doesn't have to be heavily involved in season 2 but again I think we're going to need to show her the question is how big a player are we going to make Goadriel so there are really two questions with Goadriel how big a, a player are we going to make her in these events is she going to be kind of on the outskirts in the published Silmarillion she's there but she's on the outskirts she, we don't see her actually like moving events in the story but there are other versions of the story where she is a major mover of events. But okay, so is is she going to be a big deal or is she going to be a small deal? Is she going to be is she going to be a, a, a side character and kind of a even even something like an Easter egg, um, or like the quiet think, observer because she's also going to be one of the narrators, obviously.
1: I think she needs to be somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think she needs to be there because we've got Fanor's um, attraction to her to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, so she's got to be there in a in a in a flesh in some in some degree of fleshing out.
2: Agreed. We cannot possibly not do the Feanor asking for strands of her hair and her refusing him, right? Totally. Uh, And and the whole dynamic of her being serious, like. Because basically, I mean, what we explicitly have, I mean, Tolkien explicitly says, it was actually one of the things I was looking for when I was rereading that chapter again this time. I'm like, am I remembering correctly? Does Feanor actually, is he actually sexually attracted to Galadriel? Like, does he actually have the hots for her being his first cousin? And the answer is yes. Tolkien explicitly does say <laughs> that, that, okay, it, it's not actually his words that Fanor has the hots for Galadriel, but he does explicitly say that Fanor uh, and that she was creeped out by him and that it was like, basically like, they're first cousins and that's not okay. Um, so that, that's a thing that we, I think can, that we should do, uh, in, in this, in this story. And again, it's one of the places where we, so this kind you know, this sort of attraction that Fanor has that he would probably try to fight because she's his first cousin and that's creepy, um, And it is shades of Maeglin, exactly. It's it's uh, it's 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 uh, it's sort of an anticipation of the Maeglin problem. And remember, with the Maeglin story, his attraction to Idril, um, his desire to marry Idril, is explicitly pointed to uh, by the narrator. The narrator says that the elves have long said that it's sort of uh, his the fact that he wanted to marry Idril was evidence of something crooked in him. Like that was a sign. Like that was a warning sign. Um, about Maeglin and we can, I think, deploy it in that same way, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Feanor. Um, uh, yeah, no, you're right, Marie. They're not exactly first cousins. She is his, she is his half niece. There's the half sibling thing involved there and they are a generation removed. I know, but they're, they're really close. I mean, she's his uncle. Uh no, he's her uncle. She's his She's niece. Solid. Uh they're not yeah, they're not cousins, they're niece they're niece and uncle. But anyway, the point is they're really closely related. Um and uh uh anyway, so it's it's um it's 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 it's, it's but anyway, but she is not into him. That's one thing. However, we get this tension within her, right? And this is, again, where we get the two different versions of Goadriel. In one version of the Galadriel story, she's all gung-ho about the going to Middle-earth plan. She's like, yeah, ruling realms of our own? That sounds awesome. I am creeped out by Feanor, but I am with him here. I want—I also <laughs> want to go to Middle-earth. So I want to, like, keep him at arm's distance, but I want to go to Middle-earth too, right? Um, uh, but then there's another version of Galadriel where she is like, the captain of the anti feyanor party, uh, you know, where she speaks against him openly, uh, and and she only ends up going to Middle earth herself because she wants to like supervise and and like try because like she can't convince the Noldor to uh to listen to her and not obey Fe- Feanor. so she's like, I'm gonna go along with them so that I can try to keep helping them and I can protect them from Feanor. I want to I want to still be the opposition party in exile basically, so I'm gonna go along. Um, this sounds like another bit of homework for our listeners, don't you think yeah, yeah, so think about what you think about that. How should we do goadriel? um We can start with we, we're now next time we're going to be doing episode one so uh we we, we can do
1: a little recap in the beginning Can we can we we do a little
2: recap just, in the beginning and and we'll yeah. and we'll t- so uh, discuss this on the forums. Where do you think we should have Goadriel fall out? How should we handle her and her ultimate relationship not to fan or personally, but to um uh, but to Feanor's thing. Like, you know, should, now obviously we're not, we're not doing, you know, Fanor's speech in Tyrion. That's a season three thing. We're not going to get all the way to there, but we need to, we need to set the stage. Set up, right. yeah. you know, and also, like to you noble, said, what's going to be her role.
1: And like you said, it doesn't have to be in toto a single version that Tolkien wrote, right? Yeah, we got no. a smorgasbord well, here. Well, that's not even possible. So, can, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah.
2: That's true.
1: That's true. So, you know, don't feel like you have to be true to one particular version looking right. down the way or anything like right. that. But
2: obviously what, what we want to be thinking of is the whole story of Galadriel. We, from,
1: we you know. talked about in yeah. the pre-show before we, before we turned everybody on that uh, wouldn't it be interesting to have Kelleborn and Galadriel kind of tell different stories?
2: Oh yeah. That would be hysterical. Yeah. yeah. What if we have <laughs> the different, two different, they remember
1: right, it differently or something. Yeah, t-
2: Two different Galadriels, right? Uh, <laughs> And we actually just depict two different Goadriel stories as told by two different narr- narrators. And even more funny if those two different narrators are Goadriel and Kelleborn. You know, with Kelleborn is like, uh, honey, I got to tell you, that's not actually how I remember that's it. That's not at how it all. happened. Right. You know, so in Goadriel's memory, she is like the one standing aside who is like the observer, <laughs> the wise observer looking on. And Kelleborn's like, actually, no, no, that's not really what you're like at all. Uh,. <laughs> but um yeah yeah, no, that would be funny but uh, any, anyway, anyway, okay, so tell us what you think about Galadriel we'll, we'll we'll start with a little recap of that as you, as you say next time and then of course next time episode one so we have to we have to cast ourselves all the way back to quivienin um because that's the episode we're gonna do next time so um so all suggestions that you so so questions for next time to be thinking about uh for 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 quivienin. What are we going to do with the Dark Rider, right? How are we going to handle the fear of the Eldar uh, and, and all that stuff? Um, uh, how are we going to do the overlap? We talked about overlap. Are we going to do a... Fo- so these are my formal questions. My, this is my homework assignment for you guys for next time for episode one. So first, how are we going to do their, their fear uh, of, the, of, the, of the Dark Rider and the kidnapping of elves uh, for the, the super secret necromantic orc project? Uh, question number two. Um, how are we going to do the backwards in time how much of the battle should we do you know should we we talked about maybe going back and having the end you know with the the discovery by Orame and and all that stuff you know so some of this stuff has to be going back are we going to do any kind of recap of the battle involved from the elvish point of view, you know, how much of that are we going to are we going to incorporate? it gives us an opportunity, of course, if we want it at the beginning of season 2 to do a like recap of what happened at the end of season 1. um but how much of that do we want to get into? uh you know, the the, the 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 elves awareness of the cataclysmic battle against um against Melkor, and then my uh uh, my third question: How how are we going to do the Valar? How much are we going to do the Valar? Are we going to be integrating the, the Valar discussions at all? Is it going to be a purely elf uh, elf point of view? Um, we're not going to get you know how. So I, I guess uh, you know the other que- the uh, another question is simply how much action? Like, what's going to be the central action? What should be the central theme of this episode? Um, the real narrative, the real plot is going to be happening in the next episode, right? When we have the conflict and the debate and the going to Valinor and everything. So, um, you know, where are we going to, what's the center of this first episode going to be? How do we establish the theme both for this, uh, show and of course, really setting the stage for the season. And of course, we want to think about the frame. Um, what, uh, how much do we want to reveal? What, what kinds of conversations do we want to have uh, with Arwen and, um, and Galadriel and Celeborn here in, in episode number one? Okay, so that's stuff to be thinking about for, uh, for episode one. And then, of course, also be thinking about Galadriel in general, because, of course, it's going to be relevant to how we depict her in the frame as well. Because don't forget, the frame is pre-Lord of the Rings so Galadriel the Galadriel in the, fr- in the frame is not the Galadriel at the end of her story it is the Galadriel who is nearing the final step of her story in Middle-earth but it hasn't happened yet uh, so that's a, a thing to keep in mind uh, when we're doing the frame Galadriel and we need to be setting that up and thinking about that when we depict Galadriel. Alright, okay I'll let you guys go, I've kept you. we've kept you way longer than usual so we will uh, we will let you go here today. Any last thoughts or comments or questions or things you want people to be working on for next time, guys?
1: No, I think we're good. I'm good. Okay. What I'll about you,
0: brainstorming. Dave? You know about the uh, the linguistics.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Don't forget to be brainstorming linguistics. In sure. addition
1: to everything else. That's In addition right.
2: Everything else. Be brainstorming. Times. So, okay. Very good then then I will say thanks for listening and godspeed